Hello again, friends, and you are my friends, and welcome back to another special edition of the 605 Super Podcast, this being our annual opening day Star Wars, where various stars of the 605 Super Podcast and Arcadian Vanguard get together to talk about baseball and wrestling as we kick off the beginning of the baseball season, the 2021 season for Major League Baseball, as well as another season of the 605 Super Podcast. A couple quick notes here at the top of the show. One, obviously with so many people joining in the conversation, the audio isn't always perfect. Not everyone is talking into a microphone. Some people have phones. Some people have phones seemingly underwater. But I think everyone will be able to enjoy the wonderful content here on this show. Another note, this is opening day Star Wars. Enjoy it because later today, Extra Innings Star Wars will be available. These Extra Innings will contain almost purely chaotic wrestling talk with some of the stars of the 605 Super Podcast. Tune back in later today to check that out. I think everyone will like it. Also, I want to give big thanks to the associate producer of these episodes, Jace Nakarado, who has just hitting home runs, I guess we'll use a baseball term here, with all the fantastic work he's doing for the Super Podcast and Arcadian Vanguard. But with that, let's kick things off. Opening day Star Wars starts now. We kick things off here on opening day Star Wars with two veterans of the show, and one of them who has been on every single edition of Opening Day Star Wars making various predictions about who he thought would win the World Series. We're going to talk wrestling, we're going to talk baseball, and the first person I want to introduce, the man who of course brought everyone Pro Wrestling Spotlight and the Weekend of Champions Wrestling Conventions, and he's just put out his brand new book. Everyone is raving about it, people are already getting their hands on it. Matt Memories, My Life in Pro Wrestling, Country Music, and with the Mets, none other than your friend and mine, the host of Pro Wrestling Spotlight then and now, John Arezzi. John, thanks for being here today. Hey, my pleasure to be here with you and uh, one of my dearest friends in wrestling, one of my oldest friends in wrestling, Kevin Sullivan. And of course, you just gave it away, but also on the line, <laughs> our returning champion, a man who has been on every edition of Opening Day Star Wars, a man who knows his baseball and of course knows his wrestling, the Boston Battler himself. Kevin Sullivan. Kevin, thanks for being here again this year. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, it's great that, to reunite with John. Uh, John, when are you taking us back to uh, Cebu City? Uh, I, oh, I, man. I, I don't, I, I, Brian, I'm not going to be one to tell a story that would maybe embarrass John when he was in a tiki hut for five days with about 12 naked women. The only thing I saw was empty <laughs> coconut thrown outside the, the tiki hut and, and, sun, and uh, baby oil. I didn't think you put baby oil on in subtropic weather, but obviously he's Italian, so it, they don't burn. Hey, hey, I, you know what, Kevin? I have uh, I have video of that, and um, it's actually it's not twelve; it may be about half a dozen of, of these Filipino uh, <laughs> lovely ladies who were actually uh, 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 putting lotion on me, and they looked at me because I was probably three hundred and fifty pounds at the time, and I had some really nice breasts, 
Um, <laughs> they were looking at me like I was like Godzilla or King Kong. And they were like, they were just like, in, they were just, they didn't know what they were seeing. Me and the swim trunks, the swim trunks, the mullet, and the power <laughs> twins just laughing their asses off at me. Yeah, it was a great, great trip. We went to uh, uh, the Philippines. We traveled all over the Philippines. We went to Malaysia, and we went to Singapore, and we had a wonderful, wonderful time. And Hong Kong, it was crazy. Oh, yeah. Hong Kong was crazy, too. It was great. Great. Well, you know, Kevin, there are so many great stories in John's book, and he does talk about the trip overseas, the IWAS tour in 1993. But another one he tells is about when he was a photographer being kicked out of the Boston Garden by Angelo Savaldi and Coogie McFarlane. I was wondering if you have any memories of Coogie McFarlane. Let me tell you what, Coogie McFarlane, uh, you'll love this because you know the character. The Duke of Dorchester, Pete Doherty, right? Pete and Coogie had a love-hate relationship. Pete would pick Coogie up for wherever he stayed in East Boston and drive him everywhere. If, if it was 2 a.m. and Coogie wasn't feeling good, Pete would be over there. But Coogie had been in a fender bender. So he's going for the big lawsuit. You know, he's got a neck brace on and he's got a cane. And this is when North Edelboro ran every Friday night. And I think it was the longest running uh, show consecutively. It ran every Friday for over 50 years. So, you know, it burnt down. So they beat arguing. <laughs> you know this you get I'm gonna say it and I don't give a shit. This is a different time or a different era. You couldn't get away with this. But <laughs> you you all know Pete. And Pete would have a few in him and he'd say to Coogie when Coogie come in the building, you know, he he'd help Coogie and Coogie was on a cane. And he'd say to Coogie Hey, did you hear the ball joints on my car scratching? He said, yeah, yeah. Why don't you take care of your stuff? He says, I don't have to. He says, I'll grease them afterwards. He said, nothing's going to be open. He says, Coogie, I'll just back over you. Just <laughs> 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 with grease, I'll back early. Yeah, and then Coogie was here with the king. Why don't you have another one, you drunk Irish bastard? Um, it was funny, but here's the story I'm getting to. So Coogie's working the cane, and the only time he, he's walking perfectly in the dressing room, he hangs up the cane. But Coogie used to have a little place he used to go, and he'd have a couple of nips. He was the guy that ran the show along with Angelo Savoli. Well, Pete started cutting an eighth of an inch off the cane every Friday night. <laughs> About five, four or five months later, it was like he had a miniature cane. He didn't even realize it until Pete says, you look like the hunchback of Notre Dame you bent over so far. You ain't gonna win any lawsuit, and everybody <laughs> in the dressing room was in on the joke, and they 
they busted out laughing. And, you know, he, Coogie was just a, a, a ton of entertainment. He really was. John, do you have any idea how he got in the business? Uh, Coogie, no, I don't. I, I, I don't really. Hmm. I do have a browser. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Do you remember Jazzo the Clown? Jazzo, this guy yeah. Jazzo with the yarmulke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. George George Napolitano used to tell me, like, that's the guy. He's running everything. I'm like George. You know, it's like he's working me. You know, but he was yeah. like, that's the guy. Believe me, that's the guy, Jazzo. And I'm like, he's a little Jewish guy. With this, uh, with this rainbow-colored yarmulke, knit yarmulke that he used to wear, and he'd be running around the ring and taking jackets back, and he was just this little tiny dude. And George would always say, "He's the guy. He's the guy that's running the running the place here." And you believe George because he had such a straight face. Yes, he could do that stuff with a straight face. You know what I mean? And a smooth talker. George was a smooth talker. Yeah, we had some adventures back then. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, you know, another thing in John's book, and actually we just recently talked about it, Kevin, on Jim Cornette's uh, podcast, The Jim Cornette Experience, where John was on talking to Jim, where he brought the Sheik in for the 1993 Weekend of Champions convention. I was there. I got to meet the Sheik, which was pretty intimidating. And there are various stories of him chasing people around the hotel lobby with his sword and frothing at the mouth. And I'm curious because John said that he was intimidated to talk with the Sheik. It was all through you. And Jim Cornette said the same thing. When the NWA went to Detroit in 1988, it was really you that hooked it up so the Sheik could be there. I believe he showed up one time and then he got mad that he wasn't going to get his usual percentage from 15 years earlier. And he no showed the second time. But how did you form such a good relationship with the Sheik? I was blackballed at one time because I was working for the Savolis. I was working for Florida. I was working in Hawaii. And Luke Williams was nice enough to bring me to San Antonio. So... The Savoli's had a powerful guy backing them. He owned, he had the rights for Looney Tunes, you know, the uh, Roadrunner and that those those yeah. cartoons. Yeah, Bugs Bunny. So he Daffy going, yeah, he would go into. He went to Florida and went to the major stations and said, "Hey, I'll I'll give you these." And of course, they jumped in. He said, the only way you're going to get them, though, if you put my wrestling program on. They said, oh, no. So what I saw was, rather than a problem, I had known Mario. And I kind of knew that it wasn't going to be in business forever. Because that was, you know, Mario's thing was he would go to a place much like his father and uh, and his partner was Tony Santos Jr., whose father's best friend was Jack Pfeffer. So you yeah. knew yeah. they would be on the move for a while. So I went to the 
hero, Matsuda, this is after Eddie died, and I said, listen, they got better stations than us. They don't have better talent, but I know them all. Why don't we send them an our angles? They need content. They'll put them on TV. We don't have to charge them, and it looks bigger than the Florida now will start looking bigger than it was. And I, at the same time I was booking Florida, they allowed me to book Hawaii. So me, my group got to go to uh, Florida. So how I became friends with the Sheik, they then decided, what if he decides to turn on us. So I was supposed to wrestle Barry Windham in the main event on a Tuesday night in Tampa, which was our town. We were running in Daytona, and I'm wrestling with Kendall. And they came in, they said, uh, we want you to put Kendall over. And I said, do you know I'm wrestling Barry Tuesday? And we had a blood feud. And they said, yeah, yeah. I said, so what you're doing is firing me. They said, Oh, no, we're not firing you. We just want to surprise the people. I said, okay. So they said, whatever finish you want to do, go ahead and do it as long as it's clean. I said, okay. So I said to Mark, this is the finish we're going to do. Kendall Windham, at that time, as John knows, I squatted 800 pounds. I said, I'm going to have Kendall Windham put me in the figure four, Mark. And when he does, you run in. And as I tap out, he's going to small package you. He'll stand up and small package you, and he'll beat both of us at the same time. Well, you could have heard a pin drop when they, they beat the beat Kendall turned into to be a hell of a worker, but he weighed about 160 pounds, yeah. and Mark was a monster. The people knew there was something wrong. So they, I come back to the dressing room, and my dear friend Bill Alfonso says to me, you're fired. I said, okay. <laughs> that's, that's you you kind of knew it was going to happen, yeah. Yeah, I said, that's fine. I'm the guy that gave you the money to buy your first house, and you lied to me, but I understand you're under the wrestling business, so, okay. I couldn't get booked. All of a sudden, and I had worked with the Sheik one time when Barnett started to go into Ohio in, in the Sheik's territory. And the Sheik saw me, and he liked me, and he said, rather than beat you, I want you to have a DQ, and I want you to rip the belt off of me when I'm laying. Never talk to him again. Never talk to him again. I'm sitting at home. I get a phone call. He said, they did the same thing to me. He said, come and work Ontario for me for the summer. I will pay every expense for you. And I will give you $1,750 a week guaranteed you'll probably make over that and we were only going 50 town 
miles uh, radiuses. Like we'd go left bridge to Cambridge, 50 cows. He put us up in first-class hotels. Every hotel had a gym in it. We would give him in the in the morning our breakfast tab, our lunch tab, our <laughs> dinner tab, our beer tab, paid us. So I was a amateur wrestler. When I, I'm, I'm, go, I'm, I'm going around the bush to get to the story, and I knew wrestling was fake. But when I first saw the Sheik, the building moved. And I said, I don't care if wrestling fake, this guy's uh, real. So I talked Dusty into going to Detroit with him. And it was Murdoch and me against Rhodes and the Sheik. And the Sheik being the babyface for the first time. It was the biggest amount of money we drew on the bash that year. And during the match, we did a double switch where I ended up being the Sheik's partner and Murdoch and Rhodes got back together. Now, it wasn't, they had made an agreement that after $100,000, he would get 10% of what the house was. They gave him his guarantee, but they didn't give him the 10%. They didn't show up. But I was there when he pulled in the story Jimmy Tells and Bobby Fulton. They were like little kids when he pulled in with the Cadillac and he had the vest, the jacket, the gold chains, no shirt. I mean, they... People, he was just magical, and we became dear friends. He used to come and visit me. I booked him when I was booking in Hawaii. I would make sure he loved Hawaii. I'd make sure I booked him in Hawaii. Uh, he was just so nice, a guy. I've heard people talk about paydays. He paid me every dime every week and some weeks this is when Vince had taken over the Toronto end and he was making a little bit of rumbles and it was heat real bad heat with the Sheik and Vince and Vince came in with big shows the day before or the day after against us so he was taking this money out of his pocket so that's how I got to be good friends with him. I, I, I thought to, to me, uh, if he is the greatest heel of all times, the only other one I could think about would be Terry Funk, but I still have to go to the sheep because when I asked Terry who's the greatest heel, he says the sheep by far. And John, you were scared that you wouldn't even talk to him when you booked him for the weekend of champions, correct? Yeah, I I, I couldn't uh, bring myself to uh, talk to him, and a lot of it was really because I didn't want to lose, especially with him, that suspension of disbelief. Because I I always revered him. I was always frightened of him when I saw him 
work. But uh, And the biggest regret I have out of all the conventions and all the events I ever promoted was not getting a picture taken with that with that man. I would have loved to have that today. Yeah. You know what's funny about him, guys? He wasn't much taller than I am, but he projected that he was 6'3". But his hands, the only fingers I've seen that are close to his was Andre the Giant. He had these huge, huge hands. They look like catcher's mitts. And, you know, even till the end, well, I was going to Japan, uh, and my job really was, uh, me and Sabu would be a tag team before him, and I would go out and walk him to the ring to make sure. You know, the Japanese have this strange custom. If they're afraid of something, they want to touch it to say they're brave. And... Everybody would go around to try to touch him, and I, I want to make sure no one had a something else in their hand. But he would chase everybody out of the building, and he'd have his opponent outside the building beat him up. I'd be outside the building with him, watching out for him. We come back in; every chair would be lined up perfectly. It was the craziest thing I ever saw. And he was a god in Japan, a god. Well, let's talk a little baseball. And uh, John, I'd like to get your thoughts on something and then Kevin's, because it kind of ties into a conversation from last year. Kevin, if you remember last year, we were discussing Mookie Betts and his contract and what was going on. And the Mets, of course, made a big trade, a trade in a lot of ways similar, I think, to the Gary Carter trade where they got... Francisco Lindor, the best shortstop in baseball, and they offered him, I think it is, John, you may know, 10 years, $325 million. That is correct. And he wants 12 years, $385 million. His contract would end when he's 39 years old. Kevin, I want to get your thoughts, but first, you, John, you just saw him in spring training. What do you think about what's going on with with Lindor? We have the richest owner in baseball now. Should they just give him the money? And not worry about it? I mean, what are your thoughts? Because we did just give up Rosario, who I seem to be a bigger fan of than most Met fans, but also Jimenez, who has a world of potential. But what do you think about the situation with this contract a couple of days before opening day? Yeah, well, uh, I was down in spring training and Lindor, Lindor looked fabulous and he brings an energy that the team really hasn't seen since the heyday of Jose Reyes and David Wright when they first broke in. I mean, it's that youthful energy. He's a five-tool player, but $325 million should be more than enough for 10 years for somebody. And the fact that he wants $385 million in a contract that would end when he's 39 – I I don't agree with it. I don't know what Steve Cohen is going to do. I, I don't think he's going to pull the trigger on 385. Uh, I mean, he may go 360. He may go 350. I don't know. But 385 is just too much money for 12 years for a guy that's going to end the contract at 39. And you're going to start losing your skills at the age of, you know, 32, 33, 34. So uh, I I wouldn't pay him that. I wouldn't pay him the amount of money. I'd let him ride the season out and see what happens in free agency. And of course the class of 2021 free agents for shortstop 
is going to be very competitive. Right. And for you guys as a Mets fan, I just want to say one thing to you. Can you say Albert Pulos? Yeah. Yep. I mean, he went from, you know, the most feared hitter in the, the league to very, very average quickly. And I've heard rumors lately that, and you know, that maybe he's older than he says he is. But I don't care. I mean, there is a portion, and I'm for all the money any athlete can get, wrestlers, hockey players, baseball players, anything. But, John, you said something that's so true. The diminishing returns. Okay. Uh, Pedro, uh, not Pedro, uh, Pedroia, right? He was going, looked like he, he was going to the Hall of Fame. He didn't play for what, the last three years? He played six games. He got injured and that was it. And they're going to have to eat his contract. What if he gets hurt? I mean, he is the best shortstop in baseball by far. But do you want to take that chance? I mean, I, I, I'm with you guys. Hey, I think you can. <laughs> I heard Ted Turner say the funniest thing at one time. The first time he fell out of the Forbes Billionaire Club, and he dropped down to nine hundred million in his worth, and they said, "Ted, what does it feel like?" He says, "I hardly noticed the difference." <laughs> I mean, so, I mean, really, really, you you want to, you know, I, I don't like to do this, but the Tampa Bay Buccaneers—they're all coming back, and that's because of Brady not being a pig. For him, winning is the most important. But you know he's going to have any kind of endorsements he wants. And the thing about him, he brings his players with them. Do you remember when he wouldn't do any commercials if without his front uh, line, the offensive line with them? There's got to be a point where you've got to say to yourself, okay, after that, with the taxes now that are going to be different, I think the thing is now, isn't it, that every dollar after $10 million a year gets taxed at 50%? Isn't that what they want to pass? Yeah, I don't know exactly I mean, how it's going to work, but they obviously want to pass something where anyone who would be in the range of salary that Francisco Lindor will absolutely be in will be taxed higher than they were previously. Yeah. And, and, and they're they giving them an out. It's like the first $10 million they're going to tax you on the 37 uh 39%. Now you're going to pay 50%. So really, you're going to, uh, you know, to me, Yeah, your, your career is a short one. I'm 
I'm looking at him right now. You know, he's on the cover of Sports Illustrated yeah. baseball preview. Yeah. Uh, he's going to make it up on endorsements, especially in New York. It isn't like he's playing at Seattle or Kansas City. He's going to make a lot of money on endorsements. I mean, there's got to be a little bit of give and take here. So uh, I agree. I, I agree. Um, I mean, it's just, and the Mets have always been snake bitten with these long term deals that they've done in their history. And Lindor can be the toast of the city. If he has uh, gets good out of the gate, the Mets do well. Uh, Lindor is going to be a media darling, and he's going to get endorsement opportunities that are unheard of. Yeah, I'm, yeah I heard. I, I was just going to say, Kevin, to, to follow up on your point earlier, I'm all for these guys making as much money as they can because the owners, and you know, we have the richest owner in baseball now, but the owners are making money. These guys bring the value to these franchises when everything works out. It's the years that are the problem. I got no problem paying Lindor more money per year, but give him less years. But I mean, a 12 year contract, I mean, in what world, in what other business does that work? And, you know, a 12 year deal? That's insane. I, I saw something, uh, the last year, uh, Big Poppy played. He was making $18 million, but his endorsements just in the New England area were 20 million so he's gonna make that money up you know it's like no one's gonna have him saying buy subway sandwiches or uh, buy this jaguar or i get my you know i i buy i drink muscle milk every day you know he's gonna make the money yeah, I agree. And I also think his uniform is going to sell a ton for the Mets. He's going to be oh, one of their biggest merchandise movers. So, I mean, and, you know, that works out too, but we'll see what happens. The Mets claim that it was their best and final offer. And then he immediately came back and asked for two more years and another $50 million. <laughs> so, I mean, we'll see what <laughs> happened, but we do now have the richest owner in baseball. So it's a little bit of a different mindset. And I'm of the opinion, if it's not going to hurt the rest of the team, give them the money. I mean, I don't know what's going to happen next year when Cano comes back off the suspension and you still owe him whatever, $25 million. That's going to be a little problematic. What do you think of that, John? I think they got to get rid of Cano. They got to pay him off. He can't come back. They have to get rid of him. Yeah. Yeah, I'm with you. Cano got to go. He's got to go. Yeah. How do you come back from that? But another question, and this kind of fits into the Cano discussion. If last year in Major League Baseball, in what was a short season, we had Universal DH. And I've always been a National League fan. And I ended up, like so many of my American League friends told me would happen, I ended up liking the Universal DH. And of course, this year it's not there. As of now, the Union wanted it, but Major League Baseball would only accept it in exchange for the expanded playoffs like they had last year, and the Union didn't want that. Do you think we're going to get Universal DH, and do you think it's a good thing? John, let me go to you first. And of course, this fits into Cano, because that's really the only way you could fit him back on a team if you had to, is if you have that DH slot, because 
Otherwise, it makes no sense whatsoever. But what do you think, John? Well, I, I, I'm right on the same page with you. I never was a fan of the Universal DH, but after seeing it in action last year, and especially with what's going on with the Mets, with uh, Alonso at first and Dom Smith, who's in uh, left field now, uh, the Mets need the Universal DH more than most teams in the National League right now. They could really take advantage of that. So I'm really hoping that there is a Universal DH in the uh, National League. I I was not for it because I like that the game is different. It's still more scientific, but you can't stop progress. It's going to happen. It's going to happen because they, they will come to an agreement. More playoff games, more money, more interest. Teams that haven't been in the playoffs for years will end up being there. It will revitalize uh, some clubs. So <clears throat> whether we want it or not, it's going to happen. See, I'm with you to a degree. I agree that you can't fight against progress, but I didn't like the expanded playoffs, and I got a problem with getting more teams into the playoffs. You know, I... I, the wild card took me a while to accept, and then they added a second wild card team, and I said, okay. But the idea of just having so many teams in the playoffs, I don't know, I guess I'm old enough, even though I'm younger than you guys, that I remember what a big deal it was to win the pennant. <laughs> so now all of a yeah. sudden, to have all of these teams in there, and some team that has the worst record in the league, or not the worst record in the league, but of all the playoff teams, could go in there and somehow be the National League or American League champion, it's hard for me to, to like that. What do you think, John? I I don't like the expanded playoffs. Uh, I think there's too many teams that have uh, that get in, and um, and it, it's, it's really confusing to me to see how it unfolds. And uh, let's just stick to what we got. If you have two wild card teams, that's fine. But I don't want to see uh, expanded playoffs in baseball. Okay. I'll tell you why I think they'll do it. 1967 was the last pennant race in the American League. Four teams were in first place, tied for first place with two games left to go. The Tigers, the Red Sox, Minnesota, and Chicago. If they did away with it, with the most exciting playoff, uh, most exciting pennant race in the history of baseball, they're going to do what they want to do, and they're going to expand. That is That's a good my point. belief. That is a good point. You know, I'm a big Mets fan. The Mets would have made the playoffs every year from, what, 84 on uh, to, for in, in the 80s if there was a wild card. Uh, and, of course... We made the playoffs twice, and we won the World Series once, and a lot of those teams were fantastic teams that won 95 games and didn't get to the playoffs. It's a different world now, but I don't know. It bothers me a little bit, the uh, getting so many teams into the playoffs. But uh, let's, um, let's go to wrestling for a second. Kevin, you know, the last time wrestling was successful on TNT, you were the booker. Right. What do you what do you think now of the current product of AEW on TNT? Do you watch it much? Do you have overall thoughts? 
Do you think same thing as baseball, that you can't fight progress, this is just what it is? Or do you think that there's a lot that they're missing the boat on? This is just my opinion. These guys are much better athletes. We all know that. But I watch guys come in the ring that look like the uh, waiters at the Olive Garden. I'm going to ask you guys a question. Have baseball uniforms changed much in 50 years? I don't think so. Football uniforms? Not much. Basketball uniforms? Yeah, they got rid of the short pants and the long socks. Hockey team? Hockey uniforms? No. Boxing? Definitely not. MMA? Not. Now, I'm going to ask you the big question. Besides Mick Foley, name me anybody that's drawn a lot of money. Name wearing it, a shirt. Oh, wearing a shirt. I, I was yeah. I, no, I didn't. I was waiting for that second part. Wearing a shirt. Who has drawn a lot of money? Off the top of my head, I'm not coming <laughs> coming up with one, but uh, I don't know. Me neither. What does that say? I mean, they got the answer in their libraries. Uh, here's the thing. I brought the luchadors into WCW. I brought Conan, and then Conan explained to me, and then I studied that when, when I decided I was going to do it. I was in Denver, and I saw Mexican flags in the audience. I said, in Denver? And I said, wow, we're missing the boat. And then in Chicago, I went, and I started seeing Mexican flags. <laughs> but those guys, Ray Mysterio looked like a million dollars, so you could get away with the willing suspension of disbelief. There are guys, and again, I'm not knocking anybody because most of the guys that are drawing money still look like wrestlers, but there's some guys that look like they do my lawn. I think we, when you go into a movie, I'll give you the best example. Do you remember the movie, just the Marvel movie just recently with Hulk when he came to the, uh, not Hulk, uh, Thor when he came to the Earth? Yeah. And he, he got depressed and became a drunk and got really fat. Do you remember that? I think it was uh, Avengers Endgame. Okay. You, you guys remember that, right? Yeah. What if they started that movie like that? Would he be over? <laughs> Probably not as much, no. What I'm getting at is, you see uh, the MMA guys, they're not jacked up on steroids. Um, I don't think steroids is the answer, but these guys pass real strict tests. Boxing, they pass real strict tests. Baseball, I'm sure the tests are really difficult now. There's no more Brady Boone hitting uh, uh, 50 home runs, right? Yeah. 
Was that his name from uh, Baltimore? Uh, well, Brady he had him first. Yeah, well, uh, Boone was a different player who's a second baseman who hit all those home runs. Brady Anderson was in Baltimore. Brady, yeah, Brady Anderson, yeah. Uh, so what I'm getting at is I think a lot of this is camouflage. And I hear people say, well, the ratings are down, the ratings are down. We've been captured for a year. Uh, me, probably more than anybody. I don't know if you know this, John Bryan does. I live in an island, so I'm as isolated as you can be. So, so I, I, I'm, a, I'm a Netflix geek and a YouTube. Thank God for you, Brian. You know, I was going to say this to you, Brian. You're missing the boat, brother. You need to be a therapist. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you. Send him a bill. He's one of my dearest friends. (laughs) (laughs) And And I love when you're going to finish some sentence and as you're making your point, there's a whole retort. The one that got me. And I know I'm gonna get a eat on this one. That man do. <laughs> There's a fucking war that may happen in over Catman do. <laughs> I love it. Great, 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 great job. Well, thank you. <laughs> yeah. But it, anyway, do I want shit? I actually am working for a company in Texas called SWE Fury. They're in 31 markets, but they're on YouTube. It's uh, uh, most of the guys, I'd say 90% of them have wrestling gear on. They whack each other pretty good. I mean, you know, it's not a ballet. Uh, there's a lot of violence, but they're not a publicly traded company. <laughs> you know, so they can get away with a lot more. And the whole tagline, it's Texas wrestling. Well, everybody knows at one time how crazy the wrestling was in Texas. I think that they'll be able to make it because I think I know they're going to be able to make it because what they are is when Vince was selling the Bentleys and WCW was selling Cadillacs, Paul E. was selling Holly Davison's. They're selling Holly Davison's. They're going back to the gritty where you say, uh, that guy's a pretty tough guy. And they're all uh, uh, big guys. They just um, brought Cass back. The guy was impressive. I mean, his body looks fabulous. They got the blood hunter there. This guy's six five, and I mean he whacks people. Uh, they 
have Wes Briscoe coming to this show. They have uh, Sabu in and out. They have they have two guys, young kids. They have had a series of matches. It started out as a regular match, and it's progressed and progressed and progressed. Max Cassiano and Ryan Moonshine. I'm telling you, these guys are going to headline WrestleMania someday if it's still around. These are the best two pieces of talent, and I don't see them doing head scissors. I don't see them. They bang and clang. They drop kick. They do wrestling moves. But I think, you know, everybody says, oh, all these high flyers and all. It's needed. You know, wrestling is still a circus. If you don't like the sword swallow, don't worry about it because somebody's going to walk the tightrope. And then after that, you you know, no longer. But you're going to see the pretty lady ride the elephant. And at the end of the show, Gunther Gabriel Williams is going to open the lion's mouth and stick his head in. There's something for everybody. I think we're falling into a pattern of how many dives can you see? And I, I like that line J.I. had. It looks like a covey of quail sitting out there. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I like some of it. I love some of the young talent like Daniel Bryan and Roman Reigns. I. When they were booming out of the building, I said, it's so easy to dislike this guy because you're shoving them down their throat. I think putting me at Paulie was a brilliant move. Make him, what, the Polynesian savage or chief or whatever. What's his handle? He's uh, the, is it? The head of the family, the head of the table, I forget what it is, one of those two. Yeah, I think it's both. It's yeah. head of the table. Yeah, I mean, so they did a great job putting with Paul E. I mean, they still, and look at this. He looks like a million dollars. Brock looked like a million dollars. McIntyre looks like a million dollars. The only thing I, <clears throat> I have a problem with in product is scripted interviews. How does anybody know what that person is? Do you think Dusty Rhodes would have been Dusty Rhodes if they scripted it? I remember talking <clears throat> a couple of months ago to Terry Funk. And he said his last trip up there, the guy gave <laughs> a script. And he looked at the guy and he said, what's this? And he said, oh, it's a script for you to read. That's your interview. He said, listen, Sonny, I know how to do Terry Funk. I've been doing it for 60 years. Here's your script. I mean, I think if they would loosen up, and hopefully they will, but here's the other thing that I thought was very strange. With all their arsenal 
with NXT went against AEW. Are they still going head to head? They changed the nights. Uh, I believe two two more weeks, and then uh, NXT moves okay. to Tuesday nights. NXT is getting beat, and they're sending guys down right from the main roster. They sometimes they yeah, they, they had been not as many recently. Um, you know, it's kind of like they stopped fighting the war. They just accepted. I think early on they were afraid that AEW would have a million, million and a half people every week. But when they saw that, you know, they're getting between 750 and 850. And if there's something big like Shaquille O'Neal, they get just under a million. It wasn't as urgent a mission to fight them and stop them. So they stopped sending, sending major stars from Raw or SmackDown down to NXT. And now they're just moving off Wednesday nights altogether. Okay, let me ask you something. This goes back to Lindor. <clears throat> they did. Did you say eight hundred thousand with Shaquille? Uh, no, I think Shaquille was just under a million, nine hundred, maybe nine seventy around there. Okay, and how many do they do? Seven fifty usually. Let's let's bump that up a little just to be fair. Let's say seven eighty. Okay. Do you think he was worth that to draw that? It was his disappearing act. Where did he go? Was that ever explained? No, it was never, ever explained. And no, I don't think it was worth it. And I think they blew it. If you're going to have a celebrity like Shaquille O'Neal, you have to have a really good program. You have to have a, you know, a, a way of getting from A to Z. The whole program was disjointed, even without Brandy getting pregnant. It made no sense. And I thought even though they tried to have Cody do a bunch of tell a bunch of interviews and stuff the week before it. I just don't think they hyped it up enough that Shaquille O'Neal was going to be wrestling. I didn't hear too much buzz about it from people who weren't wrestling fans. And the other thing is we saw the reaction of NBA fans who hung out after a game to Chris Jericho and AEW. What we saw now was a different side of it. We had a bunch of people who tuned in just to see Shaquille O'Neal and then didn't come back the next week. They didn't see enough to hook them to come back, even with the disappearing yeah. act that wasn't explained. And that's the other thing. When you do something that severe, you need to have uh, an answer. You you can make it a uh, mystery uh, book and keep it going week after week and drop hints, you know, but and not to mention it again, it puts everybody in a bad light, especially because they got great commentators. Tony Schiavone is an underrated commentator in my book, and JR is as good as probably as there ever was. So that puts them in a bad light because they're meeting people, you know. At, at casual setting, they're going to get a dinner and they're having a drink at the bar. And someone says, "Hey, whatever happened to Shaquille O'Neal?" Well, um, uh, uh, did Cody take him? Did the uh, uh, Mars Rover come back and give him a ride around <laughs> Disney? What the hell happened to him? Well, the other Crazy. thing, but Kevin, the other thing too is, and we'll get a little more baseball and some other stuff in here in a second, but. He got 
laid out and put in an ambulance based on Cody Rhodes going with him through a table. And on the same episode, you had the Young Bucks each put another guy through a table. They came back. They were fine. But Shaquille O'Neal was put in an ambulance. Let's not even talk about him vanishing from the ambulance. But if you're going to do that angle and have someone go through a table, I mean, you tell me you're the booker. I'm just the uh, the uh, armchair booker over here. Who cares what I think? But you're the booker. If you're going to have this big angle where a guy gets put in an ambulance because he goes through a table, why would you have other guys on the same show going through tables? And he's a professional athlete, a real athlete, because people tune in to say, if you think this could be real, a few people, you know, that's all you need is a few people. And as I recall, didn't they used to have Hack-A-Shack where there was five basketball players beating the shit out of him so he wouldn't dunk? I mean, he, he gets laid out on one table shot. Just didn't make sense. Yeah. Well. And that's what we, I think that's the problem we have today in any wrestling company is I don't think people book far enough out. You know, you got, I've been around a few writers. My uh, daughter's godfather is a writer and a pretty successful. And he, uh, he, I asked him about it because I think I could learn things. And I said to him, how do you, what's, what's your process? He said, you never know the end of the book before you even write the first word. And I thought, wow, that's what, that kind of stuck with me when I started a book. I said, oh, I got to know how, where I'm going and how I'm getting out of this. I just can't say, well, we'll, get, we'll, we'll figure that one out next week. John, I want to uh, jump to you real quick. Uh, one last wrestling thing before we uh, finish up with baseball. But Kevin mentioned Conan and seeing the Mexican flags in Denver. I'm going to guess that Kevin may have met Conan for the first time through you, through the maybe even that tour of Singapore, the IWAS tour. But when you and Ron Scholar teamed up to bring Lucha Libre to the United States, working with AAA, working with Antonio Pena, did you think that was how it would end up? Did you think in WCW or one of the major promotions they would start bringing in luchadors? Like, what did you think, if anything, the end of it would be or what did you where did you think it would go did you think it would just be one-off shows or did you think that style of wrestling and those wrestlers would get brought into the states when we did that first show in los angeles in august of 1993 and we turned away 8,000 people and the heat in that building was uh, unlike anything i'd ever seen before uh in my gut i kind of figured like all right if this is a huge success and it really was I thought it wouldn't be long before uh, these guys were going to get cherry-picked uh, one way or the other by either Vince or WCW. And then when Paul E. brought them in, uh, of course, uh, there was even more exposure for them. And, and before too long, uh, what I felt came true, that these guys were cherry-picked. And before you know it, 
WCW and, and Kevin with his uh, insight started bringing uh, these incredibly talented performers in that the mainstream American audience had never seen before. That was a great question, Brian. So I actually did steal that idea from you, John. Kudos to you. <laughs> because I had never met Conan till that night you had the little uh, banquet where you were introducing people. Were we, were we in Miami getting ready to leave? Where were we? Uh, I believe it was in Tampa. Was it in Tampa? Hello? Yeah, I guess it'll be a mystery. Kevin, are you there? <laughs> oh, we lost Kevin. Let me uh, let me add Kevin on. We can wrap up this segment. What a mystery. What a way for him to disappear. Let me uh, add Kevin back in here. Again, he's on an island, so uh, every now and then there are connection issues. We are dialing the Taskmaster, the Games Master, right back up right now. There he is. Kevin, we're uh, still recording. John said he thought it was Tampa. Tampa. Okay. Didn't we fly out of... Uh, we, we flew out of JFK. Well, we flew out of JFK. That's right. It was Tampa. You're right. Yeah, because we cut promos down there. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I mean... That was, that, 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 I'm sorry. No, uh, I think you saw something. Yeah, I mean, I I totally did, and and uh, and you know that Southeast Asia tour was kind of historic in a lot of ways. Not just because I brought the Luchadors in and the Mexican Minis and Conan, and and uh, that's even where Paulie put Public Enemy together. So I mean, a lot happened on that tour. <laughs> a lot of stuff happened on that tour, which uh, uh, which bore fruit for um, uh, organizations after that tour was over with. Right. Right. Kevin, how do you think the Red Sox are going to do this year? Horribly. <laughs> Horrible. What has happened to you your know, team? Uh, I think they built LeBron James out of some money, don't you? <laughs> I mean, you know, uh, buy this uh, 2004 car. It looks beautiful. Only got a few miles on it. You know, to me, and this is just me, Bagwell in Houston was ours. We got rid of him, which was a travesty. But to get rid of Mookie Betts, what were they thinking? The only thing I'm glad that LeBron bought into the Red Sox that bastard Tom Yockey spinning in his grave. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. John? Yeah, I don't I, I, I don't see anything the Red Sox doing anything for a couple of years. Well, now's the part of the show we have every year where we predict who we think will win the World Series. I'm gonna not surprise anyone. I'm gonna as I do every single year, I'm gonna pick the New York Mets. I really do think we have a tremendous lineup. The pitching rotation being led by the best pitcher in baseball has a chance to be special, especially if Syndergaard has anything to contribute when he comes back. The bullpen, hopefully we don't see too much of them, but you never know. I think the Mets have a really good chance, but the East is tough this year. John, who do you think will win the World Series? Uh, 
I didn't predict the Mets last year, uh, but I am going to go with the Mets this year because from what I saw in Florida and the new energy in the team and the new ownership who midseason, if they're in it, he's going to make moves. And I think if Syndergaard comes back as Noah Syndergaard with DeGrom, if Stroman in his walk year has a, uh, uh, a, a decent a decent year, I think the Mets are going are gonna to go very, very far this year. Now, who do you think Kevin's going to pick? Is he going to pick the Tampa Bay Rays? Is he going to pick? Well, is he going to pick an I'll American League team or a National League team? What do you think, John? Who, who's Kevin going to pick? Uh, Kevin is going to go American League East. <laughs> no. No. If you guys are ten games out in the stretch, you'll have Mookie Betts. He'll pay. Anything to beat the Yankees. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I picked the Mets. Hey! If they, there hey! you go. If they, need, if they need any help at all, it's an open checkbook. That's why he wants to keep some cash in reserve. He knows what they're doing. you got to pay for winners. So I'm picking the Mets, too. You know, I, I think. I always knew Kevin was a genius. I just thought it was yeah. a booking genius. I didn't realize he knew he was a baseball genius too. What were you going to say? There you go. I think it's a whole new era for the New York Mets. And uh, Kevin, for you to predict the Mets as well, it uh, just reinforces uh, what I what I think, what many Mets fans think. With Steve Cohen uh, as the owner of this team, I think the Mets are going to be in for a long stretch of very competitive years. I think they're going to bypass the Yankees. People are going to, 10 years from now, people are going to say, how long ago was it when the Yankees were good? I mean, I see this guy. This is what they needed. This is exactly what they needed. An owner that wants to win. And just uh, for the flip side, I don't know what happened to Robert Kraft. You know, but now he opened up the checkbook because he understands that Belichick had been bullshitting him all these years. <laughs> oh, it's my system. You got Brady going down there at 147 years old and they're favored to win the Super Bowl again. So, I'm, I, hey, hey, I'm rooting for the Yankees to lose. <laughs> and I want the Mets to take over. <laughs> Same here. I'm very happy to hear this, Kevin. This is just such a wonderful surprise here at the uh, end of this segment. I'm uh, delighted that you've come over to the Orange and Blue this year. If the Mets win the World Series, I will buy you a Mets hat. I promise you that. <laughs> I am so I'm, I'm delighted. I did not. I legitimately thought you were going to pick Tampa or an American League team. I really did. No, no, I I picked you guys when I forgave Bill Bugner. <laughs> <laughs> well, John, as we begin to wrap things up here, once again, I know everyone knows about it, but let the listeners know once again about your new book, Matt Memories, a wonderful book that tells your tale of not just your time in wrestling or country music or baseball with the Mets, but really the story of your life. And it's a fascinating read, and a lot of people are learning a lot about you, and they're becoming even more interested. I, we've had a lot of new listeners to Pro Wrestling Spotlight then and now, people who 
just want to relive this now with you because they're rediscovering you through this book and the publicity for the book. Let the listeners know a little bit about it and how they can get it. Well, I mean, it's really done amazing. You know, when I looked at the charts today, when we had three of the top four positions on Amazon for wrestling books, it's an eye opener. I'm hearing from people I haven't heard from in years. Uh, everyone is loving it. Everyone is saying, well, we, we're really getting to know a lot about you uh, and your past lives and everything that you've done. But the book is uh, I'm very proud of it. It's my life's work. And uh, you can get it anywhere books are sold. And you go to Amazon and pick it up there. Uh, you can go to Barnes and Noble. You can go to anywhere to get it. But if you want a, a very limited edition signed and numbered copy of it, just uh, send me an email at john at mattmemories.com, and we'll make sure we get a link out to you where you could uh, get one signed and numbered from me directly. John, now that we have Kevin singing Meet the Mets, can we get a free copy for Kevin? Absolutely. I just need Kevin's address, and I'll get one out to him this week. All right. That's what I want to hear. Thank you, guys. I had a great time. And thank you, John, for the book. Oh, uh, my pleasure, Kevin. Opening day Star Wars 2021 rolls on now when we have two guys on the line who are both fantastic show hosts on the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Both know their wrestling and both know their baseball. Of course, I'm speaking about first from New England. None other than the host of Stick to Wrestling, John McAdam. John, thanks for being here today. And to thank you for having me. I think this is the fifth year in a row we have done this, and hopefully we won't have Thunderstorm Fest like we did last time. <laughs> That's that right. was crazy. That's right. I forgot about that. And also on the line, I was about to say from our nation's capital, but he's really not. But he's rooting for our nation's <laughs> capital in terms of baseball teams. The host of the Mid-Atlantic Championship podcast, and boy, what's going on with Peacock is about to screw him up. <laughs> Mike Sempervivi. Mike, thanks for being here today. Hey, it's great to be here. It's great you have me on with John, so you can make me feel extra bad that I cannot stick to a schedule to get shows up in a timely <laughs> fashion where he always does. But uh, never fear, everybody. Don't worry. Both Roman and I have 1982 into its conclusion. So we, we uh, at the very least, go with that. And then we will decide on what we're going to do with, uh, with the future of things here because of Peacock screwing everything up. You know, real quick, before we talk any baseball here, let me bring this up because I actually went... Uh, we're recording this segment here, Sunday the 28th, and I went to Peacock earlier because I was recording an episode of John Arezzi's Pro Wrestling Spotlight Then and Now, and it was the episode where Sergeant Slaughter just beat the Ultimate Warrior for the title at the Royal Rumble, 1991. January 20th, 91 is the date of the show. The Rumble, I think, was the day before, the 19th. So after we were done recording, I said, you know, I want to go just watch this because I was listening to the recap, and it was... They immediately sent General Adnan back because of security concerns, and it was extra security there to escort Slaughter back, but luckily they had Savage get all the heat from the Warrior when he, or, you know, from, uh, take it away from Sa uh, Slaughter, I should say, when he hit the Warrior with a scepter, and I just hadn't watched that match in at least 25 years. You know, that's not really one of those matches I go back and revisit, so I'm watching the match, and I go to the, I, I was trying to watch the match, I go to the network. It's already gone. It's already sending me. The network is now on Peacock. Go there. I thought it was going to be like the sixth or something when Peacock goes away or the network goes away. And then I went to Peacock and what a miserable experience that is. <laughs> Finding the rest. I couldn't find the Royal Rumble. There's no easy tab to just find Royal Rumble. 
So it took a little while, and then I watched the match, uh, or portions of the match, but, you know, everything that's on the network is not going to be on Peacock for at least a little while, and when it goes back up, who knows what form it will take. What are your thoughts on this, Mike, as someone who, you know, has utilized Peacock for watching a lot of different events, past and present, for your work, for the work you do on Wrestling Observer Live, and, you know, for what you do on the Mid-Atlantic Championship podcast? Oh, it sucks. It hurts like hell. And I'm one of those people that's lucky enough to have a good collection and a good library of stuff at my fingertips on my computer. And that's good, but it's bad for everybody else who doesn't have that luxury and who is trying to get into wrestling or learn about wrestling history. Those things are gone. And, you know, forget about the fact that they're also going to be doing, you know, a whole lot of editing and and there's a lot of stuff that's going to go the ways of Song of the South, unfortunately, or fortunately, I guess, depending on how you want to look at things. From my point of view, it's unfortunately that a lot of things are going to be edited off. But who knows if we're ever really going to have a true WWE network again, even for all these things are going to be uploaded onto Peacock. Once five years is over, and I know a lot of people have already, you know, kind of speculated about, well, in five years, you know, finally we'll have a network again. Not necessarily true. If somebody else is willing to give them a billion dollars or whatever it is for the rights of the network, they're going to do the same sort of thing. And I, I wish there was a, a way and I wish there was the the foresight for WWE to go you know, a while ago and go, Hey, somebody, you got, you diehards, you pay twenty nine ninety five a month and you're going to have access to everything. We're just going to put it up there and there it goes, you know, without the music and all those sorts of things that they would have had to have edited off. But I would have been, you know, much more for that <laughs> to do something like that. But I understand why they did it because the money was too big, but it's sad because a lot of those things, even though we can bitch and moan about what they had up there and what they didn't and what was sitting in the vault, like all the Florida stuff, it was still nice to go back and see a lot of the stuff that I grew up with because I was born in, in 1976. So a lot of what I grew up with was up on the network. A lot of those mid-Atlantic shows and, and mid-Atlantic shows I hadn't seen before. Uh, and a lot of that sort of stuff all through the world championship wrestling era. So it's disappointing. It stinks. One thing that NBC needed to work on long before they got WWE's network was their layout for Peacock. It sucks. And I've used it since day one because being an Xfinity subscriber, we got the beta testing for it. And frankly, it hasn't moved much since then. And that's something that a lot of people are going to be complaining about if they even decide to go over and, and take their hand at Peacock. Cause I know a lot of people listening to this show, they probably have this stuff at their fingertips too. And are probably saying the hell with this. Here's my prediction. This is the first step. I don't think the network is ever coming back, and this is the first step towards WWE being sold finally I, to a, a large so. company. What to NBC yeah. specifically to NBC yep. Universal? Yes, uh, because he, he, they can't be sold to Disney while this deal is going on with NBC for the content. Um, and and to be frank too, when you look at Universal and what they have in their portfolio and the and the types of things they can do, it's not like Disney couldn't. But I think Universal and just the the relationship they've had for so long, I think they were far better suited to take it than Disney or, or frankly almost anybody else would. Well, Disney looks when it comes to the properties that they bring in to the family, they look at also the theme parks, and you're not going to have fake Hulk Hogan's and Roddy Piper's walking around Disney World. <laughs> You know, kids aren't going to be running up to a fake Undertaker to have their pictures taken. They're not going to do that. It makes more sense for an NBC Universal for a number of reasons, including the USA Network relationship. But when it comes to the network, the people in Canada, the people in Europe, the people outside of the States, 
Does the network stay exactly the same for them? As of now, because people have said, well, you can use a VPN and, and access what's taking place in the UK. Although Lance Storm mentioned that on his version of the network in Canada, he tried to go see the the Piper match uh, to see what the you know how they exactly handled that up there, and it skips right to the Hart Foundation match or whatever it is at that WrestleMania where he wrestled Bad News Brown that they edited it off. So we've already seen it happen up there now. When it comes to internationally, I think it's just a matter of it, can they get money for this thing? And as soon as they can, then we're going to see the same sort of deal and we're in the same sort of situation. Yeah, it's troublesome for wrestling history. I made the point on Jim Cornette show recently that I'm against the whitewashing or the scrubbing of these things that may be problematic and the times were problematic in wrestling. I think it does everyone better to explain it, to talk about it, to have a conversation about it than to pretend it was never there which is what that is doing to take that Roddy Piper bad news Brown match and Roddy Piper stupidly painted himself half black. It was stupid. If you listen to the promo, he says, we're all the same on the inside. Again, it doesn't justify being not even half black face, half black body, but to just erase it. That I have a problem with because where do you draw the line? And I watch a lot of mid South wrestling. Are they going to start editing Bill Watts' commentary on everything? On Russians, on Iranians, on, you know, saying the word ghetto nonstop when trying to put over an African-American wrestler? Where do they draw the line? And also, you need to be able to look at things in historical context. If you're erasing or scrubbing things based on the social norms of today, you don't get to properly learn everything you need to learn about yesterday. But John, what do you think? I, I totally don't like it. Um, I, I just, you know, I'm getting older. I'm 55, and I remember the good old days where if you didn't, if you didn't like something, if it offended you, change the channel. And I think we should all have the right to say, okay, I want to see this versus I don't want to see this. Yeah, I agree. And you know, we've dealt with so many issues with the network with just. The rights issues where they don't want to pay. I mean, this killed Mid-South Wrestling. They don't want to pay for the songs. It's Tony Khan probably would do it. <laughs> but WWE <laughs> doesn't want to pay for the songs, and you don't get them. And there are entire segments that are gone. I'll give you a great example, because I'm going to talk to Jim about this on the drive through this week. I recently talked to him about 1983 Mid-South, where the week before he debuted, Jim Ross announces next week the return of Dr. Death, Steve Williams, and the debut of a newcomer, Dennis Condry. Jim didn't know that. He didn't know that the week before they announced just Dennis Condry. So it kind of led to a discussion about they were really still putting everything together. Watts didn't exactly know what he was going to do. He didn't know who his booker was going to be. He just knew it wasn't going to be Ernie Ladd anymore. He didn't know what talent he was bringing in, but he knew he was bringing in talent. Everything was kind of up in the air still. And I think part of that can be shown a few weeks earlier when Dusty Rhodes all of a sudden appears again on Mid-South Wrestling, and then he's not there again. But there's an episode where the Midnight Express debut. So you would think, okay, Midnight Express debut, we know the story. Watts goes to Memphis. He sees all this talent. Jerry Jarrett says you can have them because they had too big a crew, and you can have my booker, Bill Dundee, because him and Jerry Lawler don't get along. Actually, he wasn't really the booker at that time, but you can have Bill Dundee. He can be a booker. So you figure you see the Midnight Express debut, Bill Dundee may be in there as a booker already. Also on this show, 
Ted DiBiase does a promo announcing he's coming back for Duggan. That doesn't happen. Ted DiBiase doesn't return until, what, the fall of 84. And this is November 83. And then the other thing, and this is the big what if, and I'll tie it all together in a moment. There's a promo with Reeser Bowden, Lanny Poffo, Mr. Wrestling 2, and Magnum TA. The week before, two weeks before, they set up the whole Wrestling 2 as the mentor to TA. Now Lanny Poffo's with them, and they announce that Poffo and TA are going to be the tag team, and then two turns on him in the promo. I don't mean like hits him with a chair, but just he goes, now Lanny, you come from a bad family. And he just starts running down the Poffo families right to Lanny's face. And then they have a match with TA and Lanny teaming up. And on commentary, Watts is just putting over how dastardly Angelo Poffo and Macho Man Randy Savage are. Never seen in Mid-South Wrestling up to this point, so no one there has any frame of reference. The next week, once again, Randy Savage brought up on commentary, run down by Bill Watts. What kind of character this is. Then they do, and this is not on the network. It is TA and two doing a promo in front of that Mid-South backdrop. And they go to footage from Lexington, Kentucky, narrated by Jim Ross of Macho Man Randy Savage. On the network version, which is now gone, that segment didn't air. They went right to TA and two sitting in a production booth reviewing footage, not of Randy Savage. So that was scrubbed, scrubbed from history. You wouldn't even know it was there. We're going to be able to play it on the show because we have all the content. But there's an example of something that was just already gone for no good reason, just wasn't there in their version. And to the bigger topic, I think it is my hypothesis that Bill Watts' original plan was TA and 2 versus Lanny Poffo and Macho Man Randy Savage with Angelo as their manager. That was going to be the program to set things in motion for the eventual two turn on TA. But uh, John, you know your Mid-South Wrestling. What do you think of any of this? I mean, I think you've tied it together well. I have seen that Randy Savage uh, pr- match with Jim Ross doing commentary, and that all falls into place. I mean, I saw that the uh, interview where two kind of turned on Lanny Poffo, as you explained, and it really it was really like it took me aback. I'm like, why is he doing this? Well, obviously, they had the idea in place to turn Mr. Wrestling to heal, but getting a little bit off that subject, I have a big question for you, Brian. You're you were in the music industry. My brother is a Berkeley grad. He his answer was huh. not much. How much would it cost for the WWE to be able to use that all the music? It depends. It would be a case by case basis. Would it? Yeah. Who owns the publishing? Who owns the mechanical rights? Who owns the master recording? Do are the artists on board? Every deal is different. Uh, you know, it, there was a time where if you wanted to use a Beatles song, you just had to go to Michael Jackson, not for the master recording, but the rights to use like a new version of John Lennon singing Revolution. There was a time before that where you would have had to gone to Sir Lou Grade. I mean, you know what I mean? Like, it depends who owns it, depends who the publisher is. It's all different. There's no like set thing. Now, Tony Khan recently, the two cases I heard were. Baltimore's junk, not Jungle Boy, Tarzan Boy. It's for Jungle Boy. And I just heard this and I was like, oh no, don't ruin the Pixies for me. He got Where Is My Mind for Orange Cassidy. Oh no. <laughs> and he got the rights to use them in perpetuity. 
whatever form they want. So that means digital distribution, on-air broadcast, live performances, uh, well, the wrestling being a performance for this uh, example. So he's doing it now. It's probably easier to do that going forward than to go, hey, Queen, another one bites the dust. You know, we would really like to get the rights to it. Okay, how many times would you like to use it? Well, we already kind of used it a few hundred times. We just <laughs> we just want to be able to reapply it to the recording, or to the television show. There's no set answer. It all depends, because you can play hardball. If it's your song, you can play hardball. There's a reason the Beatles songs were never on compilations of British invasion bands. They purposely didn't allow their music to be used that way. If Alan Klein owns your music, well, he's dead now, but, you know, you get the point. You may have a problem. You know, that was why he ended up owning the rights to Bittersweet Symphony. Depends on who owns the music and who's fighting for it. Can I keep this on music just for a second? Because, and I don't know how I'm going to tie it together, but I've been thinking about this a lot because of what Thea Trinidad has, has gone through with WWE and what everybody is going through with WWE and what artists are going through musically with 360 degree deals and the controversy over 360 degree deals, what they can mean for the artist, what the label has and, and what they're able to control. And is any of this applicable to professional wrestling, even though obviously the businesses are different, how they're going to react to these things are completely different. But when it comes to WWE wanting to own the rights to your Twitter name, your IG, your this, your that, are we in a kind of the same sort of position with wrestlers where they may, even though they probably won't, they should start looking at this in the same sort of thing when it comes to their value and it comes to all these things that they thought they could make money on on their own that now WWE wants a piece of their touring or whatever it would be in music in music world? You know, for a record label to get a 360 deal with, um, i trying to think of just a big artist to throw out there. Um, Jay-Z, that's a bad example because he's, I mean, he's run a label. He's kind of bigger than that. But um, you mentioned Berkeley College of Music. Makes me think of that douchebag John Mayer. Let's use John Mayer <laughs> as the example here, John. Let's say a label says they want a 360 deal. That artist, John Mayer, will have a top-flight industry attorney in there negotiating each individual piece of it and putting a value that may be higher than the label thinks that the value is but to get to a point where the artist is taken care of. If they're going to do this 360 deal, Madonna did one a while back. The artist really wants to make sure that they're taken care of and they're going to come out of a very lucrative deal in a good place. Who do the wrestlers have fighting for them like that? And would Vince McMahon even tolerate that sort of negotiation, the same sort of negotiation you would see to break down each individual thing, a Twitter uh, you know, a, a whatever, a Go, no, not GoFundMe, but Twitter, Twitch, all these different things. I think it would be rough. I, I think, you know, when it comes to all this, the very interesting thing, my good friend Stephen P. New, his cases against Ring of Honor, which, if they go the right way, will be a major blow to wrestlers being declared independent contractors. That's where it could get interesting. And I, I, you know, the problem is the wrestlers still in WWE, at least still don't have the rights of other celebrities, for lack of a better term, and other forms of entertainment. 
I mean, WWE employees, the wrestlers themselves being listed as independent contractors. I mean, if you study anything regarding what defines an an independent contractor, it's insane. It's completely insane. And everyone knows it. I mean, it's not like there are people who say, well, they really are independent. No, everyone knows the realities of the situation. But who's going to speak up when they're in the middle of a deal with WWE? Who's going to speak up and really fight for that? No one. Jesse Ventura. You know what I mean? Like, no (laughs) one is. No one is at all. So if it happens to Ring of Honor, then that could spread industry-wide. And that's where it could get interesting. That's where it can get very interesting. But we'll have to see what happens. But uh, we are supposed to talk some baseball here, too. John, any topics from you? Yes, I have a topic, um, and I would like to ask both of you this. Mike, I, I already know the answer. Think about someone that you were so excited when they were very young, a baseball player, and they're on your team. And the best example out there, obviously, is Juan Soto. I mean, Mike, you must wake up with a smile on your face every day. <laughs> oh, that guy's oh, yes. 22 years old, and he's already established as a superstar and one of the best players in the game. So let me ask you this, Mike. Before Juan Soto, like, who was that guy for you? Oh, God. You know, one of the original ones for me to go back a bunch of years, because as soon as you start talking about it, all I could picture was – Greg Olson's uh, rookie baseball card when he had his University of Auburn gear on for the Baltimore Orioles because (laughs) he was going to be the guy. He had the drop curve that nobody could touch. And I just I remember he's going to be he's the guy he's he's going to be the guy. And obviously things didn't (laughs) kind of work out uh, according to plan for that. But for me. I mean, I've been lucky because I've had Strasburg and, and Bryce Harper. Yeah, so, that's what I was thinking. As soon as he asked you that question, I'm like, he yeah. just had Strasburg and Harper back to back. Yeah. So, I mean, like, you know, my my immediately, it's like wrestling. You, you ask me a question, my mind goes back to when I was a child in my happy years in, in Crockett promotions, you know, hidden away from the world and, and all of my problems. So immediately, of course, it goes back there. But yeah, I mean, for me, it's easy because of those guys who have been there. And, you know, they got, look, they got a bunch of arms that, if they were the Orioles right now, they'd already be all up on the main roster already, <laughs> you know, on top of the fact that Robles is there, on top of the fact that they have an infielder in Luis Garcia, who looks like he could be, you know, obviously not to the level of what they've had, but looks to be an exciting player who could be, you know, a massive asset for years coming down the road. So I have been knock on wood, very lucky being a Nationals fan on top of the fact that, yeah, Soto's 22 years old and we don't even know what he can do yet. I mean, we've been Trey Turner. I don't know how old Trey Turner is now with 26, 20. I guess he's older than that. Maybe 28. But it's like he's still on the upswing of his career. And it's you know, we've lived if you're a Nationals fan, several lives with Turner because of the San Diego deal and, and everything else. So it's you know, that's the one thing that they have even on an aging team with all the aging arms. I mean, there are, there's a lot there to be happy about as a nationals fan. Will it be this year? (laughs) I'd like to make the case for why it could, but you know, the reality of the situation is the Braves and the Mets are so strong. It's going to be tough to get by them. But when you have Rutledge and Henry and Cavalli and these arms that are in the farm, have guys who they're just about there. And, And unfortunately for me, I don't think if something happens to Scherzer or if something happens to Strasburg, which is, you know, always a a real, you know, high chance of it every year, 
you know, are one of these guys going to be able to step up because the backside of the rotation is still not great? You know, they they sort of shored up things in the bullpen. Uh, but still, it's like, you know, they they are going to have to play over their heads. That 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 is for sure this season. But sorry, back to your to John's original <laughs> thing. Sorry, Strasburg and, and, and Bryce Harper for sure. Brian, how about you? Do you go all the way back? Well, I won't put the, put the idea in your head. It's up to you. In terms of current guys, I'm, I'm over the moon with our lineup this year. This may be the best lineup in the league. We'll see how it works out. But Jeff McNeil's going to hit sixth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and we got Lindor and Alonzo and Smith and Conforto. Like, I'm really pumped up for this lineup. In terms of young guys today or ever, when Never. I was a kid, you know, I mean, the big one I think about when I was a kid, and this guy, to us Met fans, coming off the high of 86 and just feeling that we had these teams that were going to be good for a long time because we had these core young players, Gooden and Strawberry. I won't even use them here because they broke in. I was too young to appreciate them. Really, around 86 is when, as a kid, I started really getting into baseball when I was young. But I would go to the Cozy Nook on Park Avenue in Long Beach, and that's where I'd get my wrestling magazines eventually, but they also had every baseball card that was released. And the big one that was put out, and even the Yankee fans wanted it, was Greg Jeffries. Yep. He was going to be the next big thing, maybe the biggest thing of them all. And boy, did Frank Cash and his GM think he was going to be the biggest thing of them all. And those rookie cards from like that first score set, everyone needed that card. And he came up in 88, and he performed pretty well. The problem was he made every one of his teammates hate him. <laughs> but he never lived up to that potential. He ended up being a really good hitter. He had some good years. He was good in Philly as a hitter. But he never truly found a position, and he never lived up to that hype. But he was as hyped as any prospect in my lifetime for a while there. I got a Bryn Taylor card, I'll trade you. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Man, you know, um, makes me think of Brian Taylor. Uh, the Yankees book I read a couple years ago from, what was it? I have it up here somewhere. It's from Pinstripes to Something, and I don't know where it is now. It was a great book, and I can't remember the exact name of it, which sucks, because I'd like to put it over. But it basically discussed, I'm looking for it, I don't see it. Uh, it discussed the years primarily when Steinbrenner got banished and Stick Michael and Showalter rebuilt that team, rebuilt the farm, rebuilt the team. And people forget now because there's Derek Jeter and there's Posada and there's Mariano Rivera and you can include Andy Pettit. Bernie, Bernie Williams was a little bit earlier, but, you know, kind of part of that. But Brian Taylor was going to be the superstar of them all. He was going to be their Dwight Gooden. And it's interesting when you read the book and you hear, like, well, you don't hear, but you read the quotes from like Jeter and them. And it's like, yeah, he was like, he was the guy. Like, he was the one we were all like watching. And he ends up, unfortunately, destroying his career, I guess, allegedly in a fight, protecting his brother in a fight. And he destroyed his shoulder. But that. He was another one of those rookie cards where that came out and everyone needed that one. What about you, John? I have two. Um, 
Nomar Garcia Para, the hype for him up yeah. here was unreal. And, you know, high draft pick, you know, signed at the very last minute. And I was lucky enough to see him play for the Pawtucket Red Sox. As a matter of fact, it was uh, Derek Jeter playing shortstop for the Columbus Clippers on this day. And I saw him play short. And I'm like, oh, my God, we have this guy. He can hit. He has great range, a phenomenal arm. I mean, I was just in love with the guy. And I was so happy when he came up. And he he's my favorite Red Sox player of all time. And it's just a shame what happened to him. You know, he's his relationship with the team kind of fell apart and then he physically fell apart. Didn't every, he was a great player in his prime. And every star player from that era fell apart with the Red Sox. Didn't uh, they? Not really. Didn't I mean, Mo Vaughn fall, fall out with the Red Sox? Didn't Clemens fall out with the Red Sox? Like they ended um, up having real problems with Dombrowski. Okay, I, I thought you meant like fell apart and in terms of physically. Oh, no, I am no. embarrassed. I'm talking about many, relationships. Yeah, I am embarrassed how many guys left this town on a bad note. I mean, we can go on and on. Mike Greenwell, Ellis Burks. I mean, yeah. so many of them. Manny yeah. Ramirez. That was awful. That was. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's an embarrassing track record. I remember arguing with kids because. I would say that Garcia Parra was better than Jeter and A-Rod. And I, I swear to God, there was a time he was. <laughs> there really was a <laughs> period of time there where he was more valuable than both of them, I thought. It didn't last forever. And it really, I will say this, as a Mets fan, I, I can appreciate the Red Sox. We're always going to be connected. It did break my heart a little bit that he got traded right before they won the World Series. Same season. That did feel like a little bit of like, oh, this guy deserved it. This guy should have been there. <laughs> he deserved to be there. But who's your and other a guy? Lot of it, I remember the day when I got the news that the Red Sox had traded for Pedro Martinez, easily the best pitcher in baseball. Uh, he was still young. And it was just like we added this major piece. And yeah, finally, we won a World Series with him in 2004. But he was and. We really, I mean, they gave up a lot for him uh, in terms of like minor league value. But I'm like, you know, it's like Pavano. two big time was, pitchers. Was it Carl like, Pavano oh, in that trade? Pavano and Rose. That's right. That's right. Yes. And I was like, wow, we gave up two big time pitching prospects for him. And I'm like, but are either of these guys going to turn into Pedro Martin Martinez? I don't think so. I was calling all of my friends. I was home. I, I was had the day off from work. And I got the news on this brand new thing called the internet. And I was calling all of my <laughs> friends at work saying, guess what? Guess who's with the Red Sox? And everyone was like, no. You know what trade was a little bittersweet? It all worked out and we were happy to get him. But in May of 98, when the Mets got Piazza, they traded Preston Wilson, who had just, I remember him. He yeah. just came up and he had done well in a very, very short window. But he was their number one draft pick. He was the son of Mookie Wilson. We all thought this was our center fielder of the future. And within maybe two weeks of his first appearance in the big leagues, he was part of the Piazza trade. That was a little bittersweet. Now, again, it worked out, and we all love Piazza. But I wish there was a way they could have traded someone else. <laughs> 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 Brian McRae was on the team. They couldn't get the Marlins to take Brian McRae? But, uh, yeah, that one was a little bittersweet. Um, hey, John, you know, I wanted to ask you something. 
I love my baseball and I love baseball history and I always try to learn from it, but there are players I never saw and I haven't even seen much footage of them. And I was just reading about one the other day and I was hoping maybe you can teach me a little bit about him based on what you know. J.R. Richard. Oh, man. I remember watching ESPN the night that they reported that he had suffered a serious stroke um, and just being devastated. Like, you know, like at the time they were talking, you know, they were talking like he might not survive this. And he was a great pitcher. I mean, if you go back and look at his numbers, yeah, he got to play in the Astrodome. So that helps. But he was, you know, they were talking about him being the next Nolan Ryan. Yeah, and he got to play with Ryan for a while. I mean, just think about as the 80s went on, if they had him, and all of a sudden he was in the mix, maybe not at that level he was at his peak in the late 70s, but if they had had him with Mike Scott and Nolan Ryan, I mean, that's that's pretty rough. And everything I've read about him, again, I've never actually even seen footage, I don't think, of him. But everything is like the players from the mid to late 70s are all saying he was the toughest guy to hit against. He was the toughest pitcher. And then, can, poof, what was he, 30 years old? He had a stroke. I think he was uh. 29 or 30. Can you imagine being an Astros fan, having to go through J.R. Richard, and then, like, two or three years, no, three or four years later, Dickie Thon? Yeah. Oh, wow, yeah. Jeez. Isn't that something? Huh. Well, you, and Richard tried to come back, didn't he? He, he did, did, and he couldn't did. make it. Couldn't. Yeah. No, and Dickie Thon, for those on on unaware was turning into one of the best shortstops in baseball and Mike Torres hit him on purpose there's no question in my mind and hit him right in the eye and he was never the same well you're a Red Sox guy I've talked to Kevin Sullivan in the past about, about um Tony Canigliaro yeah and you look at the trajectory you know you never know but you look at the trajectory he was on and then who was it Jack Fisher Hit him? I don't know. I think Jack Fisher uh, hit him and more than likely intentional. And that was it. You know, he never was the same human being again, let alone the same player. But uh, yeah, I mean, that something like that is so traumatic. Yeah. I mean, I saw Piazza get hit in the head and you immediately had that worry. Will he ever be the same? David Reich got hit in the head and I think it rattled him for a long time, just in terms of the fear in the batter's box. And, uh, you know, they now have the helmets with the. I don't even know what you call it, kind of the uh, the mouth guard. No, it's not really the mouth. It's the whole side. Uh, uh, Haywood wears one, and uh, I think Alonzo wears one now just to try to give you a little more protection on your face. It's scary, man. I, I always, I, I could never figure out why they had not gone to something like that a lot sooner. I can understand, you know, with just baseball tradition and, okay, now you're going to get to a point where you're going to have to put this thing on, but, like, to me, you know, with how they moved with football helmets, like I was always surprised that they had not done something a lot sooner in, in creating something for the jaw and the side of the head and everything, you know. But then again, baseball is also slow to change, too. So but, you know, as far as, you know, in the especially in the, the lower levels where you have it's such a disparity with kids who are big and strong and using aluminum bats you know, in the high school and even in the college level, it's like somebody is going to get killed. So it's like the the more we should think about head protection, you know, is it, uh, number one, pitcher to, to batter. And then, you know, as time goes along, especially with the way aluminum bats are, I don't want to see somebody get hurt so badly at the college level with something coming off 
you know, fast off the bat, you know, way too fast, way faster than it should be, you know, it, to, to something like that happens before they start to look at changing some things. I hate that. I hate aluminum bats in college anyway. What is the or justification the, for it still being used in college? I have no idea. I, I, I can't stand it. I, I really don't know. And I, in high school, the same way where it's like, it's time to start peeling that back. It's to me. I mean, I guess you could do it at the little league level, but still it's like, I've never understood what the issue is with wood bats. Although I guess maybe I'm just, you know, too old, but like, I just, I just don't get it, especially at the college level. I loved my aluminum bat. (laughs) (laughs) Playing home run derby is one thing. (laughs) Uh, I want to say here for the record, because I know, uh, Mike, you have limited time with us, so it's important to bring this up now. Last year on opening day Star Wars, John, you picked the Tampa Bay Rays to win the World Series. Mike Sempervivi, you picked the Los Angeles Dodgers to win the World Series. Mm. Any comments on these picks? Can I, can I take LA again this year? <laughs> you think LA's going to win it again this year? No, no. Oh, I LA's don't, but the they're going to win the baseball. West. <laughs> How do you think Bauer's going to do in LA? I think he's going to do really well. I mean, again, surrounded by that team. I mean, just... It, it, Yes. <laughs> I mean, who uh, San Diego's really good. And they're 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 the most fun team to watch in all of baseball for me. At least they were last year. They were the most fun to watch. But I I don't know. They're going to be neck and neck there and you know, St. Louis oh, they don't provide that much of a threat and the other threat comes out of whoever survives the the East and I just I look at LA and just they're the best well most well-rounded team. I mean, they they definitely have the best roster as far as Bauer goes. I mean, he's been up and down in his career, but look at it this way: that is a huge that that stadium is a huge advantage for pitchers, and the Dodgers have an excellent defense. So I'll ask you guys right here: who do you each predict to win the World Series? Mm. I'll go first. The New York Mets. No, I was trying not to say the Nationals because I swear I can tell you all these ways where the Nationals can win the, the the NL East. And of course, it'll be like everybody else's where they can't have any injuries, <laughs> you know, right, but the right. defense stinks. The bullpen is, you know, <laughs> it is what it is. So unless they're out hitting everybody, which, you know, it's a long season, you're not going to always out hit everybody. One injury to that starting staff and they're going to be in trouble. And I look the Mets. I'll believe the Mets when they can get by Atlanta and I'm taking Atlanta and I will take Atlanta to win the national league and I will take the Yankees to win the American league. What? And uh, yes, yes. You, I said that. I said that. I'm a little shocked. So who's going to win the world series between Atlanta and the Yankees taking Atlanta. Wow. Yes. Finally, they get out of their own way. Finally, there's not injuries all year. Finally, they do it. Finally, after all of those years of winning the East and not getting by, this is the year they get by. Although I'd like to say the Nationals are going to do it. Soto's going to be the NL MVP. How about that? I agree. <laughs> John, who's going to win the World Series? Who do you think is going to come out of the East and the and the, uh, the East? The uh, National League and the American League? Okay. Last year, I did a little bit of research, looked around. I'm like, all right, Tampa's my team. I have this exotic team that's going to make Brian Walt go, wow. And Kevin Sullivan took Tampa. Before me, so kind of taking the wind out of my sails. History repeats itself, ladies and gentlemen. I'm taking the Atlanta Braves to win the World Series. They are a good young team. They scored wow. a lot of points last year, 
And here's the thing, and I'm I looked at it the way Mike looked at it too. The San Diego Padres can mess things up for the Dodgers. Here's where you guys are going to hate me. I don't see really any. I think the Braves are a strong favorite in the East, and getting to the getting to the dance and not having to be a wild card is a big factor here. And I just see Atlanta. You know, this is a really good team and very young too. That's where I'm hoping the Nationals have a chance. Is just if ever they are able to hold themselves together, you know, I'm I'm sure Josh Bell likes to be in a position, you know, likes to be in a position where he can win now, you know. And it's just like if they can keep the things together, they have the the veterans are there, they have enough hunger there. Their young players are obviously awesome. Where, man, of course, it's, again, it's just getting by the Mets and the Braves, which you know has been impossible the last couple of seasons. Uh, you know, and regardless of what the Mets do, again, you still have to beat the Braves. And I think Washington's going to make. I'll, I'll say this just to piss Brian off. I'll give Washington one of the wild cards, but but the, the problem is San Diego is going to have the other wild card, so that that'll be that. Does anyone think the Phillies will do any good? They might be worse than the Marlins. Oh, and, I, and I'm someone who thinks that the Marlins has taken a couple of good steps forward. Yeah, I do too. Actually, I hate they to got say arms. It, but, I mean, yeah. it's not they just you know, they, but it's just the Phillies. <laughs> somebody's got to be last and it's just unfortunate and again it's the look it's the division they're playing in too you know you go ahead and put them in the well uh, it's, put them in the central the al central where there's a lot of question marks right now and then they might look a lot flashier but in the east it's like with what miami did last year you know that you know they're going to be annoying and a thorn in the mix and then you have such three heavy teams it's like that's why I was I was okay with Bryce Harper going when he did, you know, and it's I'm sure there's somebody out there looking at Harper in the same way, Brian, that you were about Preston Wilson. Like, man, you know, can you imagine if he could have gotten, a, you know, a trophy with the Nationals? Because with the Phillies, I don't know if he's going to get one. No, he won't. And once again, I'm going to say I picked the Mets, not just because they're my sentimental team, not just because I love the Mets, but they possibly can have the best lineup in the league. They have, I would say, the best pitcher in baseball. They have a pretty good staff behind him. But also, for the first time ever, they have the richest owner in baseball. And yeah. when it comes to the trading deadline, if we're close, if we're leading, if we need a little extra push, and an ace comes on the market, or something that needs to be done, a closer who's tearing up the league this season... I have faith that we could possibly get it done and not have to worry about money like we always had with the Wilpons. Well, you better get it done because you have the same expectations as every other Met fan right now. And every every thought, every prediction is going to, as long as we're in it at the end, we're going to be able to make those moves. So I have a lot of pressure on what moves get made, too, because, I mean, obviously there's always the pressure of the back pages and everything else up there, but it's going to be extra shiny now, too, because, okay, let's see what you can do, Cone. Well, the moves I'm actually worried about are the ones right now. You got to give Lindor and Conforto extensions right now before the season starts. Well, Conforto's a no-brainer. Yeah, and I think Lindor's a no-brainer. He's the best yeah, shortstop I mean, in baseball. Well, that's the thing is if you're going to have to, I mean, you're going to have to look at other moves you can make or things like that or what you want to do. And I don't know what your farm system looks like, but it's like it's me, being rebuilt because gotta... Brody Van Wagenen was our general manager who <laughs> traded our top prospects for Robinson Cano and Diaz and then traded more. He, oh, he was the worst general manager. The only thing he did good, good was bring up Alfon uh, Alfonso Alonzo at the beginning of the season. 
That was the only good <laughs> thing he did. And get J.D. Davis. Everything else has been a disaster. With that. <laughs> Brian, so, I'm taking Tampa to win the American League. Who are you taking? Ooh. I, I, I don't think it's going to be the Yankees. Could be. It could be, sure. I mean, look, it could be Toronto if... It uh, could be Toronto. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to... I think I would pick Tampa, too. I think I would pick Tampa, too. All right. Let's talk about that Lindor trade. What were the Indians thinking? They got they got B-level prospects. They got... They trade. They didn't trade a dollar for four quarters. They traded a dollar for a handful of nickels. But that's what they wanted. It seemed like it was going that way with Cleveland. You know, all through last year was going to be this is it because then they're going to start breaking it up, and that <laughs> they started breaking it up. That's why I'm surprised to see people pick Cleveland to to be a playoff team this year. I mean, even with the you know, with uh uh oh god, who was the outfielder for Chicago that went down? It's like. You're going to compare these two teams. You're going to compare Minnesota and Minnesota's offense and what they have to like to what Cleveland has. It's like it's over for Cleveland. And the first bad stretch they go on, I have a feeling that's going to be it for them. Yeah, Eloy Jimenez went down. Jimenez, He's probably going to be you. out most of the year. And that it's sucks packed. because he was a major, major prospect. I think the Lindor trade reminds me of the Gary Carter trade. In that I liked Hubie Brooks. I mean, I was a kid, but every Met fan liked Hubie Brooks. But he sucked. Go ahead. But they, tra- <laughs> but they traded him for Gary Carter and a few other guys, and we got Gary Carter. And all of a sudden, you got Ray Knight at third base, and they thought Hojo would be the future third baseman, and at times he was. Ahmed Rosario was pretty good, and Met fans really started shitting on him, but he's got a good bat. I don't think they're going to want to play him at shortstop. I heard that they were trying him in the outfield, which there were whispers about when he was on the Mets. So I think they got someone good there, but the real highlight of the trade was, oh, and I'm forgetting his name now. God damn it. Uh, The shortstop that started with the Mets last year, instead of Rosario, when Rosario went down, we started playing him. And all of a sudden, I'm forgetting his name. Oh, my God. Who was the shortstop they traded for Lindor? We look. <laughs> I want to say Jimenez, but it wasn't Jimenez, was it? I'm losing my mind. All of a sudden, I can't remember who the player was. <laughs> yeah, Andres Jimenez. Uh, he's really good, and he's got a lot of potential. The other two prospects, I couldn't tell you anything about. But the Lindor trade is just, it's a great trade for the Mets. It's a great trade I mean, for I- the Mets. When the trade was made, I mean, I, I immediately started looking these guys up. I don't remember the names, but I'm like, okay, where is the guy? Where is the prospect that, you know, I remember when the Red Sox traded uh, Brady Anderson for Mike Boddicker. And I was like, we, we all loved the idea of having Brady Anderson. He was a, a major prospect. But it's like, look, Orioles aren't giving, giving us Boddicker for nothing. So, okay. It's like you guys got Lindor for nothing. Yeah, let me tell you something about that Brady Anderson <laughs> deal too, though. Uh, hit under two twenty for five consecutive years until he found the the magic protein shakes. <laughs> yeah, but in his defense, everyone did that year. Well, hey, it's a fifty fifty. Hey, why not? <laughs> yeah, you got a Nike commercial, Gabrielle Sabatini out of the deal. <laughs> you know, but he was better than than just the two twenty average, though. I mean, he hit with some powers. Uh, he had extra bases, walks. I mean, he he's a better player than just ah two twenty. But he he never turned into what he was supposed to be when he was with the Red Sox. So 
Are you guys surprised that there isn't Universal DH this year after last year? There's yes. not? No. Major League, I, uh, at least as of the last time I looked, Major League Baseball said, if you want Universal DH, we want the playoffs like there were last year with more rounds. And the union didn't go for that. Good. I'm glad then. Yeah, I, I wasn't a fan of the playoff system last year. Uh, I, I don't want to just have every team make the playoffs. That defeats the purpose to me. But Same I, here. But I did like Universal DH. See, I, didn't, I'm, I, 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 for some reason, I still love the, the National League style. I know I'm one of the last holdouts, and I know it's going to be going away, but like the same thing with the playoffs. I, if you're going to do expand out the playoffs, then get rid of the damn divisions and just let the top eight teams make it or however much that you can think you can get off of TV revenue off of this stuff. Then go ahead and do it that way. I can't stand it, you know, with having the – you know, you're going to add a third wild card. I just know I, I to me, I, I don't like that idea at all. I know I'm it's one of those things that, you know, I should be happy because, you know, Ryan Zimmerman is still going to exist on the Nationals. You know, when you have a switch hitting first baseman, you know, he's still going to exist for for DH purposes, you know, but it, but it's still it's to me. I like I still like having that difference. And I still think that makes if you're going to have an all-star game and try to make it mean something, that's the only way you can really do anything with it is give whoever wins it, you know, give, give whatever side, you know, the, their home field advantage and their extra game than the way they want to play it. I, I absolutely hate the idea of pitchers hitting. I mean, it's, it's not fun baseball in 2019. This is the last time they hit uh, pitchers hit 144 with almost a 50% strikeout rate, no walks, no extra bases, nothing. It just wasn't entertaining baseball, in my opinion. But when they do hit a homer, it's great. Look at Jim Abbott. <laughs> did, did Jim Abbott hit a home run? I believe he did. Pretty sure yeah. he did, actually. <laughs> I know he did in college. I know he did early. Okay, I was going to say, we wait. I'm like, yeah, because he had an aluminum bat. The Yankees. Because he had an <laughs> aluminum bat, Semper <laughs> That's true. I guess I can only give him the no hitter, and that's it. But still, I mean, it's like, <laughs> I don't know. I, st- I still enjoy it, even though I know what it is, but it adds, you know, the, the double switches and things like that that happened more in the National League. When I came over to start watching the Nationals, when the, the Expos moved, you know, because I was always a pro DH guy, obviously. Uh, with the Orioles, but I always, I, to me, I enjoy watching. I still enjoy watching the hitter and I enjoy watching some of the strategy around it. Even if the strategy is just the manager going to the back to pull out another pack of cigarettes. <laughs> Are you guys want to hear something crazy? Yeah. Prior to last year, like 2019, 2018, I loved the playoff system. You've got three, uh, three divisions in each league. The winner gets in. Teams number four and five have to play this crazy one-game playoff thing, meaning you better win the division. But you still have a chance if, let's say, you know, if you get off to a cold start or the, the if a team in your division is just really strong, like the 84 Tigers ended the American League East by, by Memorial Day in 84, like you don't have that five. anymore. Hey, what did they start, 35 and 5? Or something yes, like, 35 it was, and 5, exactly. It was incredible, yeah. I just, it, God, man. <laughs> that was one of the first World Series I really remember watching, because I remember when the Orioles in 83, I, I can remember watching that and some of the stuff around it, but I really remember watching with the, the Padres. And one, two, the, the Padres not even deserving to be there. Well, I shouldn't say that since they, they did actually get there, but that was the Cubs. 
you know, this, I don't want to hear about the Ray Kroc story. I wanted to see, you know, Andre Dawson and Ryan Sandberg. And that's what it should have been. Should, have been, the, should have been the Mets. Let me ask you, well, let me ask you guys. Too, in 84? So in 84. That was the year they surprised everyone. <laughs> that's Davey true. Johnson was the manager. Gooden got brought up. Oh, that's right. Keith Hernandez, his first full year with the team, he should have won the MVP. Could have argued he could have won the MVP. 84 was the year like, holy shit, the Mets all of a sudden are real. They were and it, fun. And it didn't start that way. You brought up Mike Torres. He was in the starting rotation at the start of the season. <laughs> but by the end of the season, holy shit, they look real. And then 85, it was the Mets and the Cards to the very end. And then 86, Davey Johnson, who was an arrogant motherfucker. I love him. He told them it's for training. We're going to dominate. Like We're just going to dominate the league. And they did. And they did. <laughs> yes, they did. Now, you guys both smacked me on the Yankees thing earlier on. <laughs> well, I now, did a little more wait a second. Wait a second. Yeah. Now, I can foresee the Yankees in, in Toronto both making the playoffs. And you guys both took Tampa. And I'm not saying that, like, Tampa's not in the mix at all. But, like, you both both slapped down the Yankees quick. Is it just the Crosstown and the Boston thing here? that you don't think that this is going to be a team that can actually be in the mix, let alone win a World Series if they're actually humming? Well, I, I don't think I smacked you down. I think the Yankees are going to win, I'll, I, if I had to guess, 95 games. That's a strong team. I don't I know. Just, maybe, I'm, maybe I'm overthinking that. I, I, on paper, I think they're just they're, they're really good. <laughs> it's, now would be the time. I'm not feeling the Yankees this year. That's all I'm gonna say. I'm a Met fan. <laughs> no, I can. Uh, I can objectively. Fuck you, Jay Bruce. <laughs> I can objectively look at them. Did he end up making the team? Actually, I don't know. I think he did. Should, let me say. No, when did I, they actually? I, and I like Jay Bruce, by the way. I think a lot of Met fans give him a raw deal. He did all right for us. I'm. I'm not a Jay Bruce hater like so many other people. He wasn't Jason Bay, uh, so I got no problem with him. But I'll tell you what, guys, because, uh, Mike, I know you have limited time. I want to add someone before you go. And I believe this person is on standby. If not, I will look like a fool, but it won't be the first time. I'm adding this person right now. We'll see if he comes up. We are dialing. We are calling. Allegedly. He told me he was there. Perhaps he's on a bathroom break. Or opening a beer. Howdy. Let's talk a Lou Kippelman, welcome to opening day Star Wars. Oh, thank you. Good to be here. What are you talking into? You sound a little different. Hey, now, let's see. I thought I had my mic set up. Touch your mic like this. That hurt. <laughs> <laughs> if you're touching your mic, we can hear it. So, <laughs> okay, let me. Uh, Sounds boy, like you should be looks... playing oldies. Yeah, CBS FM. Uh, the AM. <laughs> <laughs> WOR, all the hits. <laughs> CBS FM. Oh, there it is. <laughs> there it is. There it is. Well, yes. Lou. Before we get going, on the line with us right now, John McAdam and Mike Sempervivi, and everyone has answered this question so far. It was a question sent out to the universe by John McAdam earlier, and it was phrased in such a unique way, I'm going to let him ask you instead of me. <laughs> but we're talking about prospects, and of course, you being a 
San Francisco Giants fan, but John, take it away. Okay, Lou, when a player was coming up through the Giants system, a young player, who was the one that you were most excited about? Like you woke up every day and saying like, oh, my God, like like Mike does. Oh, my God, I've got Juan Soto on my team. Mm. God, I mean, uh, I can tell you historically, I haven't. Um, Mel Ox. The- <laughs> Christy Matthewson. No, Christy. Yeah. <laughs> God damn it, Ralph Terry. When are you coming out of Triple A? Um, no, but uh, in my history of fandom, uh, we'll call it, I, I, I didn't follow the, the minors all that closely. So uh, I can tell you, you know, anything that like bubbled up to, uh the giants media or the the local sports on the news uh, you know what the first one that comes to mind is uh in the early 90s a pitcher named solomon torres i remember him oh yeah and yeah and that was the uh what was it the 1993 season when the giants won 102 or 103 games and still lost out to the to the braves in the nl west and Solomon Torres came in and Dusty just threw him into like that one of those the last crucial game of the season against the Dodgers and just got lit up. And you know, and then it just he kind of fell off the table there. It was it was a you know, it was it really was kind of a Kobayashi Maru situation for <laughs> Solomon Torres. So what about Will Clark when he was coming up? How much hype was there in the Bay Area? Oh boy, yeah, that would have been mid '80s, and yeah, I mean, I wasn't, I, I, I wasn't following the Giants very closely, but I, I was about 13 years old at the time. But I do recall his first game of the majors, where he got a home run off Nolan Ryan in the Astrodome. So that. That was a way to uh, make an initial impression. Yeah, certainly yeah. was. And uh, oh yes, who do you think is going to win the World Series? Let's get this out of the way. Oh shit, I don't know by 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 mere um, by mere weird providence. I picked the Dodgers, and it still hurts me to my core that I picked them, <laughs> and that they did fucking win. <laughs> Um, I know that's the thing I'm trying to figure out. And and last year I was just so dispassionate about the whole thing, given the, the pandemic and the start stop nature of the, of the so-called regular season of 60 games and nothing. And the miners completely shut down for the year. So this year, I don't know. I mean, I could. Uh, John, did you uh, did you pick the Rays again? I picked the Rays to win the American League, but I picked the uh, Braves to win the whole thing. Interesting. Okay, uh, and I'm sure Mister Getz will uh, have something to say about that when we get him on. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean the the Rays really did a it did a really good a good job in the postseason so um 
I know. I'm just thinking about it. And of course, the NL West, you've got, you know, the Giants with a bunch of bunch of old guys, a bunch of younger guys coming in. And, you know, then you have the Dodgers who are, I see very little reason to not find them in first place in the NL West this season. And then the Padres, who've been stacking up their roster. And and then the Rockies, who just, I don't know, seem to be the also-rans forever. So from the NL, yeah, I mean, the Braves would be as good a team as any. From the AL, I you know, if the Rays were Pete, I think that would be fun. So I'll, I'll be a bandwagon jumper. I'll go with the Rays. I, I the thought World I had Series. this exotic pick with the Braves. Would you like to hear my Dusty Baker story? Oh, please. Fire away. 1987 at Fenway Park, he was playing for the Oakland A's after spending his entire career with the Dodgers, Giants, and, and the thank you. Uh, so I'm I'm right by the A's dugout, and he's on the on-deck circle, and mm-hmm. someone, you'll never guess who, yells out, hey, Dusty, welcome to the major leagues. And Dusty turned around and laughed. So I, I thought he was a cool, gay, cool guy from that day forward. Oh, yeah. He is, man, I just feel, uh, I, I feel bad for Dusty for the O2 World Series. I, I wish it could have come through. And I wish he had never let Russ Ortiz hang on to that game ball because that just fucked everything up. Hey, speaking about Dusty, I'm going to play something. A friend of mine sent this audio to me the other day, and it's probably been out there for a long time, but I have never seen this specific unedited clip. I believe this is the Braves versus the Dodgers. Joe Torre managing the Braves. Uh I'll I'll just play this audio. Actually, the fans interfering all came about because of that caving in of the rail out there. Although the ball had already bounced away. They were actually more interfering with the left fielder, Dusty Baker, than they were with anything else. And they're going to bring Bob Horner back to third. Bull fucking shit. <laughs> what? What? Dusty was, was right in here. I mean, uh, Horner. Horner was around over here. Horner wasn't. No, 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 no,
<laughs> going off on the umpires, and boy, that's great. And see, that's what I miss about baseball. We always talk about the old days of wrestling or anything. He would have been yeah. ejected as soon as he ran out there and started yelling curses. But they oh. let him argue. And by the way, the game continued. Uh-huh. We were so, so nice to each other in the 80s. Yeah. <laughs> Got it, Mr. Weaver. So, yeah, oh, no boy. doubt. So you the heard- fans coming out of the stands, do you know if that was played at Atlanta Fulton County Stadium or a Dodger Stadium? I believe it's Fulton County Stadium. Fulton County, if, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Have you guys heard the manager's corner with Earl Weaver? I, I have, yes. I don't, I, what was it? Hold on, hold on. If you if you don't know right away, hold <laughs> is on. This the pre, uh, is this the pregame thing you would do with John Miller? Yes. Yes, then I have, yes. Okay. okay. So you know it. McAdam, you've heard it? I've heard of it. Oh, hold on then. Now, now there's the excuse we need. Yes. Earl Weaver... Manager's corner comes right up. All right, listen to this. Uh, it should be starting in a moment. And now, to the manager's corner with Earl Weaver. Hi, everybody. This is Earl Weaver with Manager's Corner. Today, I have Tom Moore, Oreo broadcaster, back on the show. And I under- understand Tom's been getting some mail uh, with questions that supposedly I can answer. Now, what the fuck are some of these goddamn questions, Tom? Well, first of all, Earl, George Moore from Baltimore is asking how much we feel the loss of uh, Don Stanhouse. Well, Don Stanhouse was an asshole. He had us in trouble, had the fucking bases loaded. God damn it, almost every fucking time he went out there, he liked to ruin my health smoking cigarettes. And thank God we got <laughs> Timmy Stoddard coming in out the bullpen right now, sticking a bat up their asses. And that's what it takes. <laughs> well, Bill Whitehouse, Earl, that, that certainly is an answer. From uh, Frederick, Maryland, wants to know why you and the Orioles don't go out and get some more team speed. Team speed, for Christ's sake. You get fucking goddamn little fleas on the fucking bases, getting picked off, trying to steal, getting thrown out, taking runs away from you. You get them big cocksuckers that can hit the fucking ball out the ballpark, and you can't make any goddamn mistakes. Uh, well, well, certainly this show is going to go down in history, Earl. Terry Elliott of Washington, D.C. Why wants to know why you don't use Terry Crowley as a designated hitter all the time. Well, Terry, Terry Crowley's lucky he's in fucking baseball, for Christ's sake. He was released by the Cincinnati Reds. He was released by the fucking goddamn Atlanta Braves. We saw that Terry Crowley could sit on his fucking ass for eight innings and enjoy watching a baseball game just like any other fan and has the ability to get up there and break one open in the fucking ninth. So if this cocksucker would mind his own business and let me manage the fucking team, we'd be a lot better off. <laughs> well, certainly you've made your opinions known on the fans' questions about baseball, Earl, but let's get to something else. Alice Sweet from Norfolk wants to know the best time to put in a tomato plant. Alice Sweet ought to be worried about where the fuck her next lay's coming from rather than where her next goddamn tomato plant's coming from. If she'd get her ass out to fucking bars at night and go hustling around the goddamn street, she might get a prick stuck in her once in a while. I don't understand where these questions are coming from, Tom. That's about it from Manager's Corner. Go fuck yourself in the fuck with your show coming up next on the Baltimore Oreo Baseball Fucking Network. The Manager's Corner with Earl Weaver is heard 20 minutes before every Orioles regular season game and was sponsored by Stop. Well, there it is, the uh, yeah. Manager's Corner with Earl Weaver. WFBR Radio. Is Tom Miller and <laughs> Joe Angel. Or it Joe was Angel. Tom, Tom, yeah. John Miller and Tom Marr for uh, Chuck Thompson was there before John Miller got there. But yeah, three-run mm-hmm. home runs. 
And funny how we mentioned Tim Stoddard, like being the calming force. Tim Stoddard would be in the same bullpen as Sammy Stewart, who Weaver would call three pack because that's how many cigarettes he would go through <laughs> when he would have him on the mound. Earl Weaver, the the only manager I know who had a special pocket on his sleeve sewn in for his pack of smokes. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> Everyone listening to this, I recommend Earl Weaver's books. They are fantastic. And my favorite Earl Weaver quote is, take the sacrifice bunt and shove it up someone's ass and leave it there. <laughs> <laughs> If we want to talk about good books about managers, I'm going to mention one here. Let me look back to my bookshelf to get the name exactly right. Billy Martin yeah. by Bill Pennington. One of the best books I've read on. I shouldn't have said best books on baseball. One of the best baseball books I've read. I love okay. that book. It's just filled with craziness. Just wild mm. story after wild story about a guy who won everywhere he went. And immediately got fired everywhere he went because no one could control him. The Tigers, the Rangers, the Athletics, of course, the The Yankees, the Twins. But what a fascinating story. What a fascinating man. A guy who no one can dispute his baseball knowledge, but he was from that era where you just you drank yourself into a stupor and you didn't give a shit. Got the fights with players. And marshmallow salesman, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Now, that's funny because one of the best baseball books I've ever read was called Wild, High, and Tight. It was a Billy Billy Martin autobiography by Peter Golenbach. Oh, Hmm. I have so many of his books. Not not that one, actually, specifically. But I must have at least five or six of his books. Yeah. He's pretty prolific. There's one book I have I have not cracked yet. It's called Seasons in Hell. And yeah, I read that. If, yeah. yeah, it focuses on the 1973 Rangers. So, and Billy Martin, I guess, with the the Rangers having, uh, you know, come from Washington the previous year, and Billy Martin uh, replacing Ted Williams as manager, and uh, I forget the name of like the teen local teen phenom who just got came straight up david clyde was it price yes Pride. david clyde david clyde. clyde that's right and yeah just one of those cases of one of those guys who are you know too much too soon and of course billy martin who was not exactly easy on his pitching staff so i you know that's it's one a, it's I a good to book read. but it's actually i think two seasons because it also okay. goes into the season after uh, Billy Martin. So, oh, okay. yeah. So it goes even further than that. But David Clyde, local high school kid, drew their big houses. He was the only draw they had. And yeah. he got them these big gates. It's like wrestling. So they yeah. wanted him up there, but he wasn't ready for the major leagues. And his arm fell off, didn't it? <laughs> his, his arm, he yeah. had arm problems at whatever age. Pretty much, years yeah. Old. So, and they had some yeah. wild men on that team. I don't have the roster in front of me, but I know they had Bill Madlock. I know they had Lenny Randall. Like, they had some crazy guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mike Hargrove came up on that team. Yeah. Right? Rookie yeah. of the year. Mm. He was uh, never any good. <laughs> <laughs> you got a first baseman hitting three home runs a year, hitting 270. Yuck. <laughs> I should also mention that John McAdam doesn't think Keith Hernandez belongs in the Hall of Fame, so it doesn't surprise me 
that he has a problem with a first baseman who doesn't hit 30 home runs a year. I do. If you're going to play first base, you got to have a 500 slugging percentage if you want to be in my lineup. Yeah, but Hernandez can ban 30 grams a night. So, you know, that that, that to count for something. I just got two books. Hold on. I'm going to grab them here from my pocket. <laughs> I bought one and then I got recommended the other one. I said, oh, okay. Yeah, I just bitched to this guy that I don't have enough like time to read all the books that I want to read. Now everybody's throwing more books at me. This is killing me. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, there's actually an expression for that, and uh, I was just looking it up the other day because I couldn't remember if I had it right. The expression for that in Japan is sundoku. It's acquiring reading materials by letting them pile up in one's home without reading them. <laughs> And it says a lot about the type of person you are, the books that you have that you intend to read, but don't. <laughs> but uh, the two books I got was, I got one that popped up and I was like, oh, this, this has to be good. It's called The Slide, Leland Bonds and the Star-Crossed Pittsburgh Pirates. So mm. the Pirates of the early 90s, this has to be good. I like Jim Leland, Bonilla, Bonds, Van Slyke, some great stories in there. So yeah. I bought that and then I got recommended this one, The Pittsburgh Cocaine 7. Oh, gee. How a ragtag group of fans <laughs> took the fall for Major League Baseball. So I, uh, I'm i looking forward to reading these two books uh, in the coming wow. baseball season. My, My new kid. nickname is Johnny Sundoko. Go right ahead, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> My kid actually asked me about the Pittsburgh deal because he, I don't know what it, where, red or whatever the hell kids are. What he, he heard about the story about the mascot getting busted for selling Coke. <laughs> oh, shit. Like, yeah. So I had to like, like, why does that sound so familiar? Then I had to go back and look at it. And then that was the whole, that was the same year or around the same time that the explosion happened with Hernandez got busted and all that stuff. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, what was the mascot at the time? The parrot, the pirate yes. parrot, the, the buck. <laughs> oh, the okay. something like that. <laughs> I yes. think it was the pirate parrot. And I'm being serious. Yes. <laughs> oh my God. Just imagining him and yeah. And like Dave Parker and Dale Barra. <laughs> Just getting a few rails in, in the dugout. John Milner. Oh, they had some guys. <laughs> that's one of the few baseball the memorabilia things I have. My dad got a, it was the 79 pirates of signatures all over a ball that, you know, is, is worth a lot to me. I don't know if it's worth anything to anybody else. You know, God knows it would cost more to be authenticated than probably the names on it, but it's just like, yeah, it's a one piece of, of, of baseball memorabilia. One of the few that I have is actually that 79 ball. <laughs> <laughs> you got some on your mustache, Dale Barrow. <laughs> <laughs> I did authenticate it. I want to find out how much an Omar Moreno autograph is worth. <laughs> I, guess I wish it was in range now to grab this thing with all the names that are all over it. There were a couple I couldn't figure out exactly who they were, but it was, you know. It was pretty much everybody on there, so <laughs> including Dale Barra, because that one was very clear to read. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I've been looking for a, for a Manny Sanguian for a while. <laughs> well, guys, or, oh, go ahead, or I got to know where your or was going now. <laughs> or, you know, I don't know if, the, if they had a tops traded card when uh, Charlie Finley uh, traded Chuck Tanner to. Uh, oh, that's right. To the Pirates. Hey, Manny <laughs> Sanguian runs a concession stand in the new Pirates Park. So if you want to meet him. Really? Yeah. Oh, man. 
because I, I made it to PNC Park about six years ago. Uh, unfortunately, I didn't, yeah, I didn't make it kind of around the ballpark. Beautiful place. Yeah, it really is. Pittsburgh's a really nice city. Yeah, I want to go to that place. I want to go to all the stadiums. That's like one of my dreams in the future. Al Getz has done it. We'll talk to him in a bit. Just go to every stadium. But guys, let's try to bring it a little bit back towards wrestling for a little bit here. Oh, must we? I don't know how <laughs> we're going to. Anyone have a wrestling topic <laughs> they want to bring up? Oof. Choo-choo. Oh, boy. Is this really where we're at now with wrestling? It, <laughs> Can we continue to talk sad? about baseball, please? Isn't that sad? <laughs> isn't that sad? John, what did you think? Uh, you know, we've all talked about it in various shows, but the four of us are here together. The passing of Butch Reed. How do you look back on Butch Reed's career? Obviously, in my eyes, just a giant of Mid-South wrestling, one of the great stars of the mid-80s. Now that he's passed and you've had some time to think about his whole career, what do you think of Butch Reed? Well, I have discussed this on my Arcadian Vanguard podcast network, Stick to Wrestling. There is an alternative universe where JCP wins. They win the war by bringing in Butch Reed, making him their world's heavyweight champion, and making him the Michael Jordan of professional wrestling. Interesting. I mean, he was that good in like 84, 85. He really was. He went to work for Vern for a while, and boy, that just... Yeah, well... That was nothing. Uh, we couldn't figure out if Vern doesn't know how to push a black guy. I can't believe it. Um, <laughs> well, you know, especially, especially one <laughs> with a no-brainer like say. Butch Reed, but, you know, hey. As a fan, I would love that, you know, because I was always a big Butch Reed fan. How could you not be a fan of Butch Reed, you know? And I, I just... Know. Physically, yeah. and, and to see then later on, you know, I didn't... I was not exposed to him in 82 in Florida and with the time in Georgia, you know, until later on. And then to see that, like, I mean, he was cool enough to me in Mid-South. And then, you know, even in the WWF as the natural Butch Reed, I just, I loved Butch Reed. Then later on with Doom, obviously, he certainly was much better than what he was doing in the WWF. But I always loved him in any incarnation in that time. And then to go back and really see him at his physical peak back there with Flair, it's just, it's, it's just in some ways too bad. He's one of those guys that is not a Hall of Famer, but he's one of those guys with, Great territory, Greg Valentine and Butch Reed, and uh, down in oh, who am I brain locking? Jerry Stubbs, you know, Don Morocco. There's so many of these guys that, like, God, I love them as much or more than any of your top tier Hall of Famers, and I can't imagine wrestling without them. And Butch Reed was just, I don't, again, maybe not in everything that everybody remembers, but in the time with Doom against the Steiners and just, uh, just, and then, you know, obviously the Buddy Landell stuff and all the stuff, you know, throughout Mid-South with the dog and all that. It's just, he was, unfortunately, this is one of the problems with the network going away. Those are, that was an easy way to get access to Butch Reed if you wanted to, you know, if somebody said his name, you can put it in the search bar and see, and yeah, you can do that on YouTube too. But you, again, you, you lose something, a little of that having the network going away. Let me throw this in real quick. Let's go back to summer of 1985. Hulk Hogan is WWF champion. Butch Reed is NWA champion. Who's going to win a fight between those two dudes? 100% of the people are going to say Butch Reed. Yeah. Yeah. Real fight. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no question. Jeff Blatnick. <laughs> Jeff Blatnick. 
Yeah, maybe not against Brad Rangins, you know, but hey, you know, against against most other guys, yeah. And that was the other that was the other attraction for Butch Reed for me was being a, a fan and being somebody that played football and and wrestled and had a father that played football and wrestled and enjoyed wrestling, but looked at it as, I don't want to say that Bill Watts approach, but like, you know, what do guys do after the, you know, they can't play in college anymore and they don't want to put on a suit. They, they got to do manly things and pro wrestling is one of those things. And Butch Reed was perfect for it. I mean, Butch Reed and, you're, and Ron Simmons later on, and just there's guys like that who were just, I mean, physical wonders, you know, that just could not make it for whatever reason at the top tier in the, you know, in, in the NFL or in the top tier in college and moved on to wrestling and were great. Uh, gentlemen, yeah. we have a little bit of an update on a story we talked about earlier on this show. Uh, I'm seeing here on the Observer website, the New York Times did a story about the Peacock editing of WWE content. And one of the quotes here is from WWE. It says, quote, Peacock and WWE are reviewing all past content to ensure it fits our 2021 standards. Well, that, that answers that. That, that answers that. So. I read that they are reviewing all 17,000 hours of footage. Crime. I, mean, I can't wait for the first phone call. Who's this Bill Watts guy? How did he get away with all this? <laughs> Thank God for uh, my award-winning Google Drive. I, uh... <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Well, <laughs> oh man, yeah. <laughs> what do you make that on demand, Mike? <laughs> <laughs> oh, we can talk. Yes. We can. This is why so many people proof. have mm-hmm. stockpiled content, have kept yeah. digital files. Some of us still have our videotapes because mm-hmm. of the fear that it could go away. The fear that someone gets their hands on it and decides, you shouldn't see this. We're not going to let you see this. And it goes away. And WWE and NBC Universal using WWE's 2021 standards. I don't know. Yeah. I, I, I it just goes to show Comcast can fuck up anything. <laughs> That's right. Tell me about it. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Mike, I don't oh, know. Yeah. I've seen your tweets, man. Yeah. Mike, I don't know how much more time you have, but at a minimum, I want to ask you this question. Dusty Rhodes comes into Mid-South Wrestling, October of 83 does a big angle on TV, a, a maybe one of his most emotional promos of that era, talking about Nikolai Volkov and how he loves America and he hates Russia. This is the one where he invents the word. I think it's, Nikolai Volkov, you're not in my repetenda! <laughs> <laughs> but it, he's so like emotional and everything, it works, but it's not a real word. What if Watts, looking for a new booker to replace Ernie Ladd, instead of going to a Jarrett and getting Bill Dundee, convinces Dusty, hey, why don't you come here and be my booker? Who does Mid-Atlantic Wrestling get as their booker in 84? Oof, boy. You know, you, you hear Jim Crockett's talk. He knew he had to make changes. He knew he wanted ten-pole events. So, you know... If it's not Dusty, who else has that got that kind of mentality at the time? And I might have to lean on you guys for who would have been, you know, floating about and available then. But boy, uh, see, you're coming off of Dory Funk. You weren't going to bring back Scott and Ole Anderson was in the in the mud. I mean, I, you know, Ole might have been able to sell himself, uh, you know, up there again because he had past history there. But 
I, I don't know if that would have been. I, I, I don't know. That's a good, good question because JJ would have went with Dusty. So he would have been there as well, too. I, you know, the easiest person would be, in my eyes, to go ahead and just make the trade and bring in Bill Dundee because at the very least you have a guy that would have surveyed the scene, looked at what needed to be filled, what holes could have been filled, and started to play to that. Would it have been successful? Obviously, no. The way it turned out, obviously, you know, Dusty and Crockett for a while was the the, the premier, you know, hand in glove, but that may have been the way to do it. Plus he wouldn't have to go far from Tennessee. He would know even if it wasn't working, he he'd have the opportunity or in his mind, he'd have the opportunity to get out and go back, you know, and then I don't know who you would fill it with, but I mean, off just off the top of my head, I guess that would be it. Not knowing who else kind of would have been floating out there and up for business at the time, you know, Jack Briscoe, would that have been something Jack and Jerry that they would want to do plant themselves in mid Atlantic for a while I, I don't know. No, they were looking to cash out. They were done by that. So point. yeah. So yeah. and and why do that when you could just be in Florida? So you know, and, and I guess too, you have Wahoo. Here's the thing: you have Wahoo yeah. there, and you had if Tully, if you were going with the original plan in '84 that Tully was still going to come in, you know, out of out of San Antonio, he went to Kansas City for a while, and he comes in. You have Tully and Wahoo there, who have familiar. They may not love each other, but they had familiarity with each other. Where. In theory, you could have inputted Tully into that role, or he could have maybe lobbied for that role, along with Wahoo obviously being there, who probably would have been a better, if you're going to go from Dory to somebody, I guess Dory to Wahoo may have been the way to go. Yeah, I I find it most paradoxical in that first half of 84 that along with Dory Funk, other guys doing booking uh, with Dory Funk were Wahoo Ernie Ladd and Gary Hart, each of them, you know, having fairly good experience, a fairly good track record in terms of booking in, you know, Mid-South or Dallas or Wahoo later on working with what he had to work with uh, in Vern's territory. But put them all together and you have Greg Valentine turning babyface and teaming up with uh, Jimmy the Boogie Woogie Man Valiant. <laughs> so it's like, and all that nonsense. Angelo Mosca Jr. and oof, you know, oof. Dory is the outlaw. <laughs> yeah. Everyone has the but, same uh, reaction to Mosca Jr. And then yeah, and then Ernie Ladd. It was like the the most they had him doing was doing some stuff with Mosca, doing some stuff with um, Rufus R. Jones, and then. Uh, becoming for a little while being a mentor for Jesse Barr coming in. Yeah. So well, it was like, too, if, if Crockett was really looking to be as electrified as it sounded like he was in the, the interview that he did, then, you know, that he was looking to, and he, well, obviously they had the silver star, but they had things that they wanted to, who could have excited him. And there would be the only thing with like an Ernie lad or a Wahoo where it's like, if he had a vision or there was going to be this vision shared with someone that obviously Dusty being Dusty, you, you can't exactly share the same visions that Dusty had. But like who was going to provide a spark into an area that needed it and needed that change? And again, like Tully could have taken it, but could it have you know excited the situation? Could have it excited the office? Bill Dundee, that's where I think Bill Dundee may have had all the right words and the right way to try to get people excited. But I don't know. And that's where Gary Hart, you know, Gary Hart. I don't think in hindsight 
there was no way he would have given Gary Hart the book there, you know, because it just didn't seem to Gary oil and water. He he could survive under Dory there. He could go for a little while, but there was Crockett didn't want him, you know, because just Gary's personality. So it's like who, who again, if that happens, boy, with with the the, the beating that Mid Atlantic took after the WWF, you know, they they took Piper and they took Orton and they took all these, you know, they they plucked away from them, not to the level of the AWA, but they certainly plucked away at them. You know, what happens to that promotion at that point? Certainly, I'll say this. They don't get WTBS, you know, for sure. We're talking about Mid-South promotions as being the ones if, if when Georgia goes out, there's no question at that point it's Mid-South. And then you have the whole thing changing because even if the, the entire golf market is dead and on its ass by 86 with the oil boom, he's it's still at least on WTBS trying to sell the thing nationwide at a time where, you know, somebody could break out along with WWF. So who knows? But that's for sure. One thing I would think is he controls WTBS for sure. You know who was still OK in 1982 as a booker? Buckley, Christopher George Robley, the third. Third. <laughs> he ain't yellow. That's that. That's, that's one thing we know. But he brings in Bruiser Brody. He brings in Abby. He brings in all the guys. There's blood and guts and mayhem and, and all that sort of stuff. And then what? That's a good question. And then what? I don't know. I mean, Bob I, Sweetan. Bill Bob Dundee, Sweetan and Rufus R. Jones. Bill Dundee would have done a good job, but I don't think Crockett would have gone with Bill Dundee. I don't think that, there's really never much of a Crockett, Jerry Jarrett crossover with stuff or mm. help between the two. Dundee flared and hate him yet at that period of time. So <laughs> that potentially <laughs> worked. And if you look at all the talent Dundee brought, are booked in Mid-South Wrestling, that was the talent for Crockett the next year. Rock and Roll, Midnight, Buddy, Terry Taylor, T.A., Khrushchev. Mm-hmm. What? Nobody was a better talent scout from Mid-South, from Mid-South or for, from Jim Crockett than Dusty was it with Mid-South because he just, I think you said it on a show and I can't remember if it was Cornette or on the Mid-South show where it's like, hmm, uh, I'm looking at the menu. I'm going to take one of everything. Like, I'm going to take all this <laughs> yeah. right here. <laughs> yes. Mm, this is mid- I like this menu. Yeah, thank mid-south, you, Bill. Yeah, Mid-South was uh, Jim Crockett's favorite Waffle House. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i have a name to throw out there i've been going through my my mental rolodex of potential bookers guys with a, a good wrestling mind terry funk has an amazing wrestling mind. i swear to god i was just thinking the same thing when he brought up dory mm. jr i was thinking terry would have been an interesting pick right there i, was I thought about him thing. too but then he but dory's going so i, I don't know I, I guess yeah i guess if you want to hand it over to terry if he'd be willing to do it man uh, that's yeah. right I didn't yeah. think of that, that Dory was, you know, Terry can't take Dory's job. Ah, uh, uh, Then I'm going with Flair. Mm. Flair probably would have asked for it. Yeah, well, and Crockett would have given it to him, and yeah. it probably wouldn't have worked. But, you know, who knows who, you know, Flair would have put around him or what he would have had to do. He would you have held on the steamboat, I'll tell you that. Yeah, well, yeah. Mm. I mean, Flair was a really good booker when he was doing it in early 1990. He just couldn't handle the stress yeah. of it. Right, well, but and I that's mean, the thing I, there with his with his lifestyle. Is he able? So it's like well, then who who does he fall back on in the same way that Dusty could rely on yeah. JJ and some other people? Who right. would Flair's circle had been at that point? And though Flair was maybe traveling less than before, it was still about the last year and a half of the NWA champion as a traveling champion. Ah, uh, that's a good point um, too. 
so that, you know, he'll show up in Southeastern or Continental or Portland or <laughs> New Zealand hmm. or wherever. So who's going to who's going to be the maintenance booker while the champ is off, you know, fulfilling his obligations? I, I really had to get off here like a half hour ago, but I can't now. Now, let me So I'll just throw <laughs> this out there just because I don't know where he was in that moment. But Ray Stevens was in Mid-Atlantic not long before this. Let's just say there's a magical thing where somebody goes, hey, Mr. Crockett, have you thought about Ray Stevens? You know, it, it, would do you think that could have been a fit? And where was Ray Stevens at the time? I guess in with I the think AWA. Was back or... in the AWA. Yeah. Hmm. Here's an interesting thing. If he makes Flair the booker after Starcade 83, let's say Dusty gives him the idea for Starcade and Dusty decides he's going to go with Watts and take all of his crew from Florida to Watts. And thank God that didn't happen because I didn't need to watch Ron Bass in Mid-South Wrestling. No disrespect to the late Ron Bass. But if Flair's made the booker after Starcade 83, is that enough to convince Piper not to leave? That his buddy, his best friend is about to be the booker? No. I'm going to say no. No. If if, if mm. it's if it's almost anybody else that's a friend of Flair's, Valentine, uh, Bob Orton, uh, maybe maybe they don't. But I think Piper just being wired how Piper is and the, you know, I think that was enough. And then ultimately, obviously, yeah. what he ended up getting out of that. But, you know, him right. with David Schultz and, and whatever at first, I, I right. no, I think he was made for it. So did Piper move to the WWF before George Scott was the booker? He quit and he did one appearance in Toronto for Tunney because he committed to that. But I think he quit. He was out by December. Right. So when was so Scott was Scott? Scott was already there then, right? No, I guess he wouldn't come. He would come in 80. He would come at some point in 84. But I guess no, I guess Piper would have already made the jump by then, I guess. Yeah, because, yeah, because obviously, you know, George Scott and Piper would have had uh, a relationship. I don't know how well they got along, but, you know, Scott put the rocket on Piper in late 80. So well, Ricky was Ricky Simo. I don't know if it, was, it wasn't his first match, probably, but essentially it could have been his first match was in the WWF was basically at WrestleMania. And, you know, walks in and beats who was it, Matt Bourne or whoever. Well, I can't even remember Matt who, who he beat. Yeah, yeah, Matt, Matt Bourne. So it's like to, to open the show. So it's like there, there was one thing like, hey, yeah, we would have never gotten Magnum because Magnum would have stayed in Mid-South and, you know, some things would have would have changed a little bit. But, you know, with, with that being said, then Ricky Steamboat would have stayed and we would have seen Ricky Steamboat as NWA world champion, you know, surely. I think Magnum was going. I mean, he grew up in Virginia. It was his dream to to work, you know, in, in mid-Atlantic wrestling. I, I think he was going either way. Do you think yeah, Magnum we, was going even if Wyndham didn't leave? But that's the thing is I think there's there's a whole timeline that gets crunched there because then he comes off the bench quick because Wyndham's out the door in September or around the time they're doing the tournament. Magnum's in there and solidified by oh him and the Barbarian, I think, they debuted on the same show late that year. Yeah, I think I, and for those unaware, uh, Magnum TA got a push that Barry Windham was supposed to get in 1984, 1985. I think he would have wound up there eventually. He just would have taken a different road. That for sure. Well, yeah. And, and coming home, you know, and being from Norfolk. Yeah, absolutely. And the thing was, too, you know, it, he had done Florida. You know, he had gone to, to Mid-South. 
where where else was he going to go then after that? Does he go to the AWA? Does he go to the WWF? Nah, odds are he probably goes home, and he obviously is you know going to stand out a lot more there. He would have stood out in the AWA too, but he stands out in a lot better way for himself. You know, certainly at that time, if he were to jump over to Crockett at that point, he goes wherever Dusty is. That's where. Well, he goes. and that's the thing with Dusty trying to to keep him in pocket too, because. You know, obviously, <laughs> you know, you, you saw what you, you know, what he had there. Well, Mike, I'm going to guess you do have to really go. We kept you <laughs> yeah. way longer than you, we were supposed to. <laughs> I like that. Leave this job and go to another job. Here, here I goes. <laughs> but thank you for being a part of this show. I wish you could stay for the whole thing. You're always great on the air. We always have a good time. And once again, you correctly picked the World Series winner last year. We'll see how this year goes. Hey, it's going to hurt me if it's the Braves too, but uh, Braves over Yankees, Lou. That, that's what I decided to go with this year. Or so, but mm, I appreciate okay. you having me on again, Brian. I appreciate being able to talk to Lou and, and, and to John again. Thank you very much uh, for everybody who will hear this very likely before you hear the next episode of the Mid Atlantic Championship Podcast. It still exists. Uh, yes, I'm trying to get up there every day on the Mid Atlantic Pod uh, Twitter feed, but uh, a show is coming. We have a the pre pre production is done of the big massive special show that we have coming up, and then we will get back on the horse for 1982. So all of you can follow along uh, with our words since you can't watch it on the network anymore. Mike, good hanging with you. Hey, good good talking to you guys too. Thank you very very much. Take it easy, Mike. Let's go, Mets. All right, Mike. Have a good oh, rest of the night. <laughs> let's go. You're leaving on Let's Go Mets. And he's gone. <laughs> and he's gone. He hung up in disgust. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll tell you what, because we've already been going for a while. Let me add someone to the call that is on standby. And I just got to mm. see if this is under his real name or his alias. Hold on. There he is. My chair is fucking squeaking again. Adding. <laughs> One of the hosts of Charting the Territories, the host, Al Getz, who does incredible research, and there he is. Al Getz, how are you? Hey, I'm good. How are you? Doing all right. On the air with us right now, superstar producer Lou Kippelman and the host of Stick to Wrestling, John McAdam. Superstar host. Are we the infield? We are the infield, yes. (laughs) Well, shit. (laughs) <laughs> We're in for a long season. I, I had a question. Have you ever thought about doing Battle of the Network Stars with all the various members of the Arcadian Vanguard podcast network? I like the I idea. Look, I, I don't I know how it will work. but I look horrible in a wet t-shirt, so <laughs> I'm, I'm not so sure. Oh, Lou, you look I, great. I am no Adrian Barbeau or Farrah Fawcett. Linda Carter. You, you are. As long as I get to throw a pie in someone's face, I'm in. <laughs> yeah, I we get a few candidates for the dunk tank. <laughs> Al, who do you think is going to win the World Series? Uh, are the Carolina Disco Turkeys uh, in the major leagues, or are they in another league? I just saw that new logo the other day. I don't know how that popped up. Maybe it was you that posted it. It just popped up on my feed the other day. Oh, I already ordered the T-shirt. That's that's an amazing logo. That's they're brilliant. That that team is going to make millions just off of T-shirt sales and hat sales. The Disco Turkeys. That apparently is a thing in North Carolina, which I and I lived in Western North Carolina for ten years, and I'd never heard of it before. But it's apparently what they were what they call peacocks. 
They, they call peacocks disco. disco turkeys? Yes. Well, Which this if was... you think about it, it makes sense. It's, it's sort of like a flashy, sexy tur- version of a turkey. If we weren't waiting on your answer for the World Series, this would be a perfect transition to what Peacock's doing to wrestling right now, but... Uh, Dodgers. <laughs> the Dodgers. There, there it is. I'm the only one picking the Mets so far. Al, who guess who the consensus pick has been so far? Who? The Atlanta Braves. They were my pick. Uh, you know, living in Atlanta, I just... I've seen this so so many times. I mean, you know, looking at the Braves lineup, they really didn't lose anybody of note, and they gained a very good pitcher in Charlie Morton. Um, the Ozuna thing is fascinating because without the DH, it seems weird, but I think he, he adds a veteran presence, and I think he just personality-wise meshes really well with uh, Acuna Jr. and Albies, and I, I think they will become better players for just – you know, soaking in his his experience and his knowledge. Now, is Nick Marquez Cakes coming back this year? I have not seen his name, so I'm leaning towards no. And that that was one of the big what ifs because if you remember, Marquez last year optioned out, mm-hmm. and the Braves signed uh, Yesiel Puig, uh, but then he uh, tested positive and basically withdrew for the whole season. And after a few weeks, Marquez optioned back in. But if Puig has been healthy and played for the Braves, I think that might have been the piece they could have used last year. And I think things might have gone a whole lot differently. Nick Markakis a few weeks ago, guys, announced his retirement. Thank you. Because I don't want him having a World Series ring. I have an irrational dislike (laughs) for Nick Markakis. I do not like him at all. Why? Ah, because he, well, once again, it's like the first baseman thing. He doesn't do the things I think a right fielder should do. He doesn't hit enough. And then he gets that big contract from the Braves because he's from Georgia. Get out of here. Get serious about winning games, not bringing in local guys. Hey, Al, one question, and I know John has to jump off in a second. Do you think the All-Star game will actually be played in Atlanta this year? Because I hear there's talk of, Uh uh-oh. Oh, man. Oh, that's that's me. (laughs) Sorry, guys. I've got a fire alarm. I'm going to have to sign off. <laughs> All right. We'll we'll talk to you in a minute. I'll ask this wow. question again. <laughs> wow. <laughs> the government, man. They're trying to shut me down. Now let me ask these questions about potential boycotts of the All-Star game. He is still with Ooh. us. We still have him. <laughs> Do you have a fire escape? He is gone. <laughs> he is not I, gone. I, I, was, I was expecting a Scott Steiner run in there. Uh. Well, <laughs> I hope he's okay. Let me uh, message the person we were going to add after him to make sure oh, he's no. uh, alive. Hold on. Wow. Oh, shit. We, we've had earthquakes and fire alarms. and Yeah. We've had my so God. many disasters on these uh, thunderstorms. Yeah. I was about to ask Al if Pablo Sandoval is still with the Braves. He is. He's going to make the team. Another one. Another guy I can't stand. <laughs> I can't believe he's still playing. Wow. That's what I said. Yeah. Once Lou and I were recording Stick to Wrestling and we just finished and the fire alarms went off here and they were going off for, an, uh, I want to say close to an hour, but probably like 20, 30 minutes. And that's like the reverse fortune. Sometimes my recording, like they go off as soon as I'm done. Not right. We're not right when I start. <laughs> the timing of his alarms was impeccable. I know. Yeah. 
do you think you're really going to get the All-Star game? And (laughs) (laughs) I've never been censored like this before in my life. (laughs) All right, let's uh, let's try our next guest. Al Getz will come back whenever he's uh, back online. I know we need to ask Al if he's planning to go to Arlington this year. That would be uh, ball uh, ballpark number 30 for him. Uh, yeah, you know, he recently brought that up to me, so we'll bring it up on the air. Uh, let me ask this person, what is their Skype handle? It's got to be more than 30. It's a live colon. Uh, not you, not you. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I was just making an educated guess. Oh, man. Yeah, we're trying to figure this out now. Al Getz apparently running. This can't be dick. Okay. Uh, hold on. I'm on three different computer screens, and now i got to somehow copy this and move this over here. Hold on. I'm trying <laughs> to fucking move. Well, you know, no, nothing beats an old ballpoint pen and post it. All right, this no. is coming up. Let's see if this works. I'm trying to add this person now. We'll see. He's still typing away while I'm calling him on here. <laughs> it says he's unavailable. Oh, and here is his landline. Let me just, why don't we just do the landline while we're at it? Hold on. Let me dial in this man's well, landline. The, the joy does, of trying to make this work. Does he have uh, access to a telegraph? <laughs> D, 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 D. Carrier pigeon. Smoke signals. Yes. Don't say that. It's too close to home. Al is running from oh, sorry. right now. <laughs> right. Sorry, Hold Al. On. Thoughts and prayers. All right. We are <laughs> dialing this man's home number right now. He will pick up momentarily, we assume, for this. Hello. There he is, the late Uh-oh. Dan Farron. Welcome to opening day Star Wars. Boy, it just seems like yesterday that we were having opening day Star Wars, but it probably was, actually. It's it it was a while, so. July. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think it was. How you guys doing? Doing all right on the line right now with us, of course, superstar producer Luke Hippelman, as well Hello, as Dad. the host of Stick to Wrestling, John McAdam, and the superstar host. We were just briefly talking to Al Getz, but his fire alarm <laughs> we, went off. We have all the superstars in the firmament here. Yeah. And he, had, <laughs> he had to run into the street covered with just a blanket. So hopefully he'll be back on the show shortly. How are you? You know, this, I'm doing fine. You know, this show is cursed by. I had an earthquake during one of these things. That Al's house is on fire. So I mean, you know, I, I almost fear. Uh, I think Howard's worried about hurricanes. So who knows what's going to happen in this show? You know, just recently we were telling Michael Ano stories on Jim Cornette show, and I brought up that yes, I heard you were the late Dan Farron because he announced you dead twice, which is just remarkable. That mm-hmm. it happened a second time. Right, exactly. Dan, well, what's so amazing about it is yeah. What, oh, what's what is so amazing about it is that um, my my good friend Danny Wolf was on the show the first time that he did it, and uh, I said to Danny, "Well, why didn't you say something to Mike?" And he goes, "I just kind of thought it was funny." I said, "So you kind of think that me being dead is funny? So you thought it was okay to spread that rumor? You know how the internet works, you know." Dan Farron, the superstar Billy Graham of wrestling fans. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I'm gonna, 
I'm going to come back later as a karate guy. That's my next gimmick. Uh, that, that's the next thing we'll do. So. You got to shrink too. But Has it ever been explained I, I how that happened? How it got into the Philadelphia newspaper in the Gorilla Monsoon column that Billy Graham was dead? <laughs> um, I mean, I know he had cancer, and you know how rumors are. I mean, Cal Rudman was on the air talking, giving details about superstar Billy Graham's death. Like, oh, he was a, a toothpick. It was a really sad sight. <laughs> I didn't know that. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, it's, it's amazing about how, how wrestling rumors uh, spread all the time. It's, I'm more amazed now when I find out certain people have died that I thought had died years ago. Who's the most recent example of that? Oh, um, I can't think of it. It actually happens more with actors sometimes, but I can't think of anything on the company. But I have that has happened over the years where they say so and so has passed away. And I go, I thought he was dead years ago. Yeah. Mine is Buddy Colt. You know, <laughs> oh, that's yeah. Yeah. Did you see that whole thing where Buddy Colt's wife was feuding with Brian Blair over? Yes. He did, she didn't want a service, and Brian Blair was going to have a service for everyone else in the family but her, and I don't even know what to think of all this. And Brian, Brian Blair, Blair's feuding with someone? Uh, and Brian Blair says she's mad at him because she, he beat up her brother in 1976. <laughs> 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 it's just so silly. It's so silly. It's so silly. Oh. Uh. Wow, and yeah, not well. Not to mention the fact the uh, it was, should we bring up the cult lineage, so to speak? Yeah, there, yeah. All the tributes to Buddy Colt. No one called Austin Idol. <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> for real. I mean, you know what? What are your memories of that day? And. He tells the story. He tells it, you know, he remembers yeah. so much of it. He tells it well. But, you know, he, uh, I didn't see any quotes from Austin Idol after Buddy Colt passed away. Mm. Dan, what's yeah. going on with your phone? You sound worse than normal. I don't know why. Uh, let me let me move around because I'm, I'm having a lag here, uh, more so than even usual. Let me go to another another portion of the house, and hopefully a fire hasn't broken out there. Let's see what's, uh, <laughs> okay. what's going on. <laughs> Actually, I just I did just get uh, a few minutes ago. On I had this little thing called Citizens Alert on my phone, and what that does is it tells you whenever something happens in the area, and it becomes yep. kind of like a a scary telenovela uh, because it, it starts telling you. And, and last, right yep. before, <laughs> yeah, it's like a soap opera. Right before. Right before, right before you guys called, I got a, uh, I got, I got a ding saying that someone had been shot a mile and a half away. So, oh, yeah. uh, you know, that, uh, that may be it. Is, it. is this any better, gentlemen? Uh, no, but you know, we'll, we'll go with yeah. it. Usually you but, sound yeah. more clear, okay. I think, but it's, it's just, it's a weird, uh, phone connection. Yeah. yeah must be just a weird, you know, yeah. I, I tell you what it is, is. I just, I just got my second vaccination shot and obviously the chip in my arm is not helping with the, with the reception on my phone, which I was hoping it would do. Well, I'll tell you what guys, well, before we talk any longer, Lou, I want you to jump in in a moment, but our very own superstar host, he said it twice. Now I'll say it. I'll stick to wrestling. <laughs> John McAdam has to leave us. And John, this is what five years in a row. We've done this show now. Thank you for being here. Thank you for, once again, 
incorrectly picking who will win the World Series, but we appreciate you being here. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, thanks for having me. Brian, thank you for having me. I always have a real good time doing this. And if you want to hear more of me, I have the Stick to Wrestling podcast. It is the major league of professional wrestling podcasts. If you have not checked it out already, please do so. <laughs> yeah, maybe one of these days I'll be invited on as a guest. <laughs> we got to do that again soon. I think so. All right, man. Thank you again. All right, John. Have a good rest of the night and good luck with the upcoming baseball season. And there he goes, John McAdam, into the wilderness, into the night. <laughs> there was some loud noise there. I don't know what the hell's going on. It shows that he is still here. We will see if yeah. he immediately disappears. I don't know if he knows how to hang mm. up, so maybe I should just <laughs> hang, up on, hang up on him. Hold on. Let me... Uh, I, uh, I, I know that, yeah, telecommunications in Nashua are a little dodgy. He is I now gone. I can speak to that. He is now gone. Let me, uh, while we're talking, you guys talk about yourself. I'm going to text out guests and see if he's alive. You guys talk <laughs> okay. about yourself. <laughs> I know. Speaking of, like, citizen events, I I, I have yeah. the same app on my phone, and it's like, it's it's Pavlovian now. It's like Pav yeah. a Pavlovian response combined with, uh, you know, that sound stinger from Law and Order. So it's like dun yeah, dun, and my wife's of yeah. you know, a what got blown up now? And yeah, there, there's been a I don't know, but you've noticed where you are, Lou. But there's been an an uptick in men with machetes. I have no idea why, but I, I once a week I get a I get a an, an update that there's a man with a machete at some place, and I have no oh, idea okay. why machetes is it, are such a big deal anymore. Is it pineapple harvesting season in the valley? Uh, must be something. I mean, uh, okay. I, I have no idea what any reason why, but uh, sometimes I I love other things. You'll get things like sometimes uh, car driving down street with man hanging on hood. Right. Uh, that was one of my favorite ones. And, uh, oh, a woman attacking people at a bank with a shovel. It's fascinating. It's like, yeah. it's like world news today type of headline uh, on your phone on a regular basis. Exactly. And then you're just like, God, I hope somebody's taking video. Yeah, exactly. Go, go, oh, go usually within a couple minutes. Yeah. Well, usually on that app, within a couple minutes, somebody puts the video up. And it always reminds me of the, the old Bobcat Goldplate joke about – um, if you see somebody uh, like a bunch of cops beating me up or whatever, please put down the video camera and call help. You know, and, that, and that's that's kind of what it is. so we're taking pictures of, of the car burning. Has anybody thought about trying to go in and, and pull the guy out uh, of the car that is burning? No, I, I'd rather just take yeah. the videos. Well, what in uh, risk risk the potential clout on Instagram? I think yeah. not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So how? Lou, how are you doing? Are you, you're working all over the place. You're doing all these different shows and, 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 and all this stuff. I mean, how do you have the time to do anything else? I mean, it's a it's a full and bountiful uh, recording and editing schedule I have. Uh, perhaps not as lengthy as uh, as Brian and, and Jace have at this point. Because yeah. uh, Jim Cornette is his own, uh, I wouldn't say cottage industry. Let's say like cottage conglomerate. Uh, <laughs> with his shows, <laughs> but yeah. yeah, currently on the docket where I'm working on uh, pro wrestling spotlight then and now. Uh, yesterday right. we recorded uh, the second part of Ron Fuller's Super Studcast. 
Oh, I was uh, going to ask you about that because uh, I haven't talked to Ron yet. Did it go as well? Without, re- I don't know if it's re- been revealed yet who the uh, the guest is, but did it did it go as well as I had hoped it would go when I decided that yeah. this would be the way we would go? I think, yeah, I think Ron billboarded it at the end of his uh, talk with George Shire in part one. Part two, he's talking to Dave, uh, Supermouth Dave Drayson Brzezinski about. Oh. Uh, yeah, in in depth about uh, Detroit. How did and, it go? Uh, ah, went great. Oh, good. Is mm-hmm. you know, it's pretty cool. And you know, I think Ron goes into some detail about the, um, his and his father's uh, attempted purchase of the Ohio uh, territory in 1977. It was an ill fated thing. So, but Ron immediately moved on and uh, you know got Gulf Coast which was probably uh, the better option for him. More beaches than in Ohio. Yeah. So. yeah. <laughs> so. No, that was the thing when we were trying to come up with the next Super Studcast. I told Ron, I said, Ron, you've done so much to educate people about Southeastern and Continental and Southern wrestling. Why don't we do something where the listeners get to learn a lot about other territories, but also you do, because he doesn't know too much about the inner workings of the AWA or Detroit. He's had limited dealings with Vern or the Sheik. He was ripped yep. off by the Sheik. But yeah. this was, I thought, a really cool opportunity to not just, again, not just the listeners, but Ron gets to learn about this stuff. And I thought it would come out great, and I'm happy to hear it worked out. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I got to talk about, yeah, the Detroit you know, Doyle and Barnett before the Sheik, uh, you know, bought them out and also going into a little bit of, you know, Al Half's history in Ohio and yeah, just all sorts of stuff. Dave, though, it was a, a very interesting factoid that Dave, uh, you know, became a fan of wrestling because he had an upstairs neighbor who was a wrestler. Uh, a man by the name of Leaping Larry Shane. That's right. So, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Quick update. Al, Al Getz wrote to me, I'm standing outside my building with most of my neighbors waiting for the all clear. So, ah. that's what we're waiting on there. <laughs> so he's waiting for Randy Mantooth in the fire truck. To, <laughs> okay. So, Dan, what have you been up to? Yeah. Uh, I mostly have been working. I mean, I, I, I was only out for about uh, three months uh, last year. So I, I've spent a, a, a long, uh, long days uh, working and, and really not going anyplace else. But like I said before, I, uh, I just got my second uh, vaccination uh, over the weekend. Um, I, I'm, I'm not in a hurry to rush out anyplace, uh, uh, but, uh, but at least I, I feel a little more comfortable. If a friend of mine said, if it makes me 5%, uh, it, it improves my chances 5%, uh, I, I'm happy with the, uh, the vaccination and I've had no problems with it. So, uh, that's been good. So I'm, I'm hoping maybe to kind of, uh, be able to get out soon and, and do stuff. I mean, uh, I, I do miss going to local Lucha Libre shows. I really do miss that. Uh, and I've actually got to the point where I'm actually starting to miss, miss Kurt a little bit. I, I can't quite understand that part. But uh, we haven't seen each other in over a year. Uh, we we occasionally talk on the phone. And by that, I mean I, I usually send him a text, and then about eight days later he responds to it. Uh, and then we 
and then we talk at that point. Uh, but uh, yeah, there's been uh, no, there's not not been a heck of a lot to do. Uh, I've done a lot of reading, a lot watching, a lot of movies. Uh, I think uh, Zack Snyder's Justice League actually is is a little shorter than the average uh, Arcadian Vanguard podcast uh, in most cases. <laughs> but um, but they've been doing all that stuff. And uh, I got to see finally the Olympic Auditorium uh, documentary, which was really great. Uh, I was really impressed yeah. by that. Yeah, I got to see it as well. I need to definitely see that. recommend it. Yeah, I want to see it. Yeah, I yeah. Mean, what it, they it, did was it was very, well, it was a very smart thing they did. Uh, they wound up what they did was they kind of traced the history of Los Angeles through the Olympic Auditorium. They they kind of showed what the what the auditorium meant to the neighborhood and and to the different people who lived in the area and all that. And it was really I was just absolutely blown away by it. And it was really funny because. Uh, they, they wound up screening it, uh, online at the last minute. And, uh, I bought a, a pass and, uh, and watched it uh, twice over the weekend, that weekend. But it was really funny. I had sent a text to the director of the film and said, Hey, I couldn't go to the big opening they had at the driving theater, uh, earlier in the week. Is it going to be, uh, you know, running again? And he wrote back to me and said, um, yeah, I mean, we're going to be, we're going to be screening again real soon. And I said, that's kind of funny that you wrote back to me right now because I'm actually watching it right now. And he goes, they're screening it again? So I wanted to say, well, welcome to the wrestling business. Well, you know, you're not going to be told anything, <laughs> and your stuff's going to go up whenever you, <laughs> whenever you, whenever you least expect it. That's what to, to look forward to. But, Brian, I think you would really enjoy it. I mean, it, it, was, it covers, has to cover a lot of ground, and uh, boxing is, is kind of the main pull for it. But still, yeah. uh, there's a lot of great wrestling stuff in there. And just to, for to be able to listen to Gene LaBelle talk for a while is always, mm -hmm. always fascinating. I definitely want to check it out. Uh, they've been posting stuff about it for a few years now. So I've been yeah. waiting to see it. Just, I mean, they had Piper in it. So, I mean, it's been a few years that they've been posting clips and uh, images. So yeah, I mean, I really want to see it. Yeah, and the and the sad thing was because it they took it took such a long time to to put this thing together, and it was supposed to actually air. Uh, not air, but it's actually supposed to be screened at uh, at a local film festival a year ago, um, and because of COVID and everything, it, it got it got bumped. So it's it's they've been sitting on it for a year, and I, I must it must have driven them crazy to actually spend all that time and getting the getting the film done, and then you know they have to sit on it for a year. They can't really show it to anybody, and it it's, it's also a sad um, state of affairs is that. There is about a minute crawl at the end of the people who have passed away since they interviewed them. I mean, mm. Piper interview on that was like literally a couple months before he died. Yeah. Um, and uh, there was just uh, some very, and it was also very touching to see some of the stuff, especially it, they gave a little, nice little section to him and uh, and other stuff there. But uh, it was it's definitely worth seeing. And it, actually, it's one of those things where it makes me happy because between this and uh, the Rock Rims book. Uh, it, it, it kind of shines more of a light on the Los Angeles territory, uh, which has, has been woefully uh, neglected for years and years and years. And I, I think I'm hoping that this will create more interest uh, in the in the territory, and maybe we can we can get some uh, some more uh, videos and some more books and, and some more people working on the history of the area because it is quite rich, uh, quite offbeat, and quite rich. Yeah, there was a lot of good stuff too in the Hornbaker Buddy Rogers book. About L.A. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think a lot of people will probably surprised when they find out 
the L.A. office and the Hollywood office were two separate entities. Right. Right. Yeah. And that's all and I have, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, yes, yes. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the, the uh, documentary. It's certainly, the uh, you know, the main focal point is, you know, through uh, the, the tenure of Eileen Eaton through so much of the, the Olympics history, uh, both boxing and wrestling. So it's a, you know, it's a very interesting sort of uh, profile of her being such a trailblazer uh, in, 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 in a field rife with testosterone. Yeah, exactly. And it, it also it made a, a, a nice little uh, it's interesting that Gene is, is usually very, very quiet about any criticism of Mike, his brother, who was the promoter. And uh, he did make a reference in the movie when he said, well, was, was Mike my mother's favorite? Uh, does a giraffe have a long neck? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, at one time, I was actually, and, and, and Gene never, very rarely broke kayfabe, but he was with a group of people, and I think he had an adult beverage one time, and he told me a story about getting really mad at the way that Mike had treated a couple of the women in the office and going into the office and picking up Mike by the neck and, and slamming him up against the wall. And he says, uh, my mother walked in and all of a sudden we were like five years old again. We were have our, had our heads hanging down. Sorry, mom, we won't do that again, mom, that kind of stuff. So uh, it's, it's, it's a great movie. I, I really recommend it. And I hope that when they release it on DVD, uh, there's a, that they include a lot more footage because I'm, I'm sure they shot uh, just a ton of stuff. Not too long ago, I put up on Twitter and Facebook on the Wrestling News account a photo that I found uh, it is a Theo Errett photo in the files of it seems like it's a party or something. It's certainly after the matches. John Tolis with a big smile on his face. He looks just like Ernest Borgnine and Mike mm-hmm. LaBelle in the most casual outfit I've ever seen him wearing talking to him with his arm around his shoulder and the caption written on the back by Theo Errett, I believe is Mike LaBelle tries to convince John Tolis not to leave L.A. <laughs> and I was like, wow, that's, uh, sure they had, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They had they had that conversation many times, I'm sure, from what, I, what I've been told. Uh, the, 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 the payoffs were never great here, obviously. Uh, and uh, the, those guys went through a lot of stuff. And then, you know, the Blasi Tolis match at the Coliseum, was really the you know the 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 straw that broke the camel's back because both Blassie and Tolos were pissed off about that and and Tolos hung around and would go away from time to time uh, but Blassie of course left for the uh, the East Coast and and only rarely came back um, you know on occasion after that I mean that was that was just the the end of that relationship and 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 Mike and Bob Arnett will tell you stories Mike. Mike didn't give a rat's ass about the art of wrestling. Mike cared just about the money of wrestling. And if he didn't think he could make money with it, he didn't want to do it. And, uh, you know, it wasn't as good as the, uh, um, you know, the uh, box office being held up right before the payoffs, but it was close to that at times. It was very close to that at times. Yeah. The rock rims book is fantastic. He's now doing a Roy Shire biography. Mm -hmm. And then I think he's going to do a Ray Stevens one. So it's just one after another, after another. Uh, hold on, we've got right. an update from Al Getz. False alarm, apparently. I'm back inside if you want to try to patch me in. <laughs> Let's try this. I mean, 
We can't go all night, but let's see if we can get them on here for at least a portion of this before we wrap things up. Uh, I'm going to add someone who's already here. Let's add him. Let's see if he's there. <laughs> this was a disaster last time. He was on for like a minute. <laughs> Hello? There he is, the fire starter himself. I said I didn't think the Atlanta Braves were going to win and my building caught on fire. Holy crap. <laughs> well, John McAdam had to jump off since you've been dealing with your fire issue, but the late Dan Farron has joined us here on the show. And what I was well, asking you... if ever was one. What I was asking you is if you thought the All-Star Game will take place in Atlanta because there are now stories coming out that the union as a protest against these voting laws that the legislature has put into effect, uh -huh. want to not have the all-star game in Atlanta. Anything you're hearing locally about that? I, I, not only have I not heard anything, that's, this is the first I've heard of that. Um, that's a good stance to take. I know a lot, there's been a lot of activism here in Georgia um, calling out corporations that are headquartered in, in Atlanta or in Georgia that have not spoken up strongly. I know, uh, more recently, there's been a boycott Delta movement going um, because a, an email circulated where they sort of uh, both sides did and, and seemed OK with the uh, legislation that the state passed. So that would be interesting to see, because, I mean, we just had the NBA All-Star game here. Um, and it would it would have been really cool to get two sports having their All-Star games in the, in the same city in the same calendar year. But who knows? Do you think it will, do you think it will be a unifying force for the citizens of Georgia and specifically Atlanta, despite all of these issues and the big divide, knowing that Cody and Brandy will be filming their reality show locally? <laughs> and it, and it's good that I read that they've been taking acting classes to prepare for their reality show. They're executive <laughs> producers of their own reality show. <laughs> Um, I, you know, here, here's what I think. I think they, and I, I've, I've been pretty clear on my political leanings. I'm pretty far on the left. I think what happened with the Senate runoff was proof of what happens when, you know, Republicans try and, you know, overreach. And I think this has the potential of backfiring uh, against them significantly. I think you're, you, I think they pissed off a lot of people late last year. Uh, and they just are you talking about Cody and Brandy. People. Who are you talking? No, no. Good. I know. I know. I know. I know. I know. My God, no! I love Cody. Oh, I'm, I might take jabs at AEW and half the roster, but I I have a ton of respect for uh, Mr. Rhodes. Absolutely, hell of a guy. So obviously, based on what you just said, you're trying to get a job with AEW, aren't you? No, I'm retired. Okay. <laughs> Yeah. Speaking of boycotts, I, I heard that uh, they're trying to organize, along with Delta, a boycott of uh, Coke, Coca-Cola. So I, I know I know people that work for Coke in, in Georgia, and this is apparently a very true thing. If they are caught in the wild with a Pepsi beverage, this is grounds for termination. Caught in the wild with a Pepsi beverage. <laughs> I don't know how else to phrase it, but, you know, if they're out in, wow. in the open shall we say, uh, drinking a Pepsi product prominently, you know, labeled and displayed that they might be risking their job. So that is Bill Watts, wow. the CEO of Coke now. <laughs> wow. So I got you know, on Facebook, someone posted a picture of a party they're at and there's a 
Pepsi bottle on the table next to them that could be a that, that if, potentially could risk their job if they're an employee of Coca-Cola. Well, of course, not, yeah, not, yeah, not just Georgia in general. No, every yeah, no, yeah, no, of every course, not just Georgia's in general. <laughs> <laughs> what were you going to say, Dan? You know, if they're if they're at if they're at it if they're a Coca-Cola uh, employee and they're at a party and they get caught drinking a Pepsi Cola peat flavored drink, they should actually be executed on the spot. Whether they work for Coke or not. <laughs> yeah, whether yeah. they work for Coke. It's all about crimes against nature. Pepsi Cola Peep. I don't even know what that is. Yeah. What is that? Yeah, Pepsi has yeah, come out peep. with a limited yeah. edition Peeps, like the marshmallow Peeps. Ew, really? Flavor. Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah. Along with Pepsi, just came out with Pepsi Mango. Oh, what? <laughs> I've never been so disgusted with a cola company before since RC Cola I, when I was a kid. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, the refreshing taste of diabetes in a can. That's what we're talking about at that point. Uh. Yeah. I'm waiting for the Pepsi Castor Oil uh, variety. <laughs> <laughs> Man, that sounds uh, awful. But uh, hey, Al, let me ask you this. Being in Atlanta, are things starting up yet for the local indie scene? Or what do you think like the next six months to a year are going to be like as the pandemic doesn't completely go away, but people get vaccinated and things maybe get a little bit more under control. What's going on locally with wrestling? Uh, there have been a fair amount of shows being held, some with very strict social distancing and, and seating requirements, some with half-assed, you know, vague intentions to socially distance and uh, strongly encourage masks and some that don't give a shit whatsoever. Um, uh, and I think over the next few months, uh, Georgia just announced uh, all ages are available for the vaccine. I actually have scheduled an appointment to get my first dose of the microchipped vaccine uh, in a couple of weeks. So I think slowly but surely, uh, Gr groups will start to run again and and to based on who the promoter is to varying degrees of safety and and you know a a sort of slower rolling out process for some and a you know whatever we're all clear now for others okay well we'll see what happens i think you know up here it's still not all ages up here it's still i'm on a list i'm waiting for my vaccine dan just got his blue what's your status uh, I got the first dose uh, about a week and a half ago. My next one is upcoming. The second one in about 10 days. I want that Johnson and Johnson one. One shot. <laughs> <laughs> are you sure, though? <laughs> These are the same people that produced poisonous baby powder several years ago. I, I know the, guy, I know. I know the yeah. guy that sued them for that. So I figured if anything goes wrong, I'm set. <laughs> Stephen Pinu, Stephen Pinu, Stephen Pinu. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I know exactly what to do. Hey, Al, on the most recent episode of Charting the Territories, of course, available at chartingthepodcast.com or wherever you find your favorite podcast. What do you talk about with Sonny Roughhouse Fargo? Jim Cornette was curious when I plugged it on the show. I, I mean, we talked about basically the same talking points uh, of, of Roughhouse's career. Um, and as a matter of fact, we. Um, linked to the YouTube video of Jim talking about Roughhouse, basically the the double life that he led and how, um, you know, on a limited basis, he may have been the man who popped a house more than anybody. 
Um, you know, if you look at, you know, the week before, you know, Roughhouse to the week of Roughhouse, he truly might have been the best short-term regional draw in wrestling history in that, you know, his name on the card. And, and that's because he was only there for a couple of weeks at most, whereas anyone else brought in a Papa House is usually, you know, coming in as a regular or for a longer program. But, you know, we just talked about um, how he also didn't like to be photographed a lot. Uh, when he was working as a referee, just in case the magazines, you know, got out in in the ghoulish territory and fans might make him figure out who he was. So we didn't really do- dive too deeply. Um, we just touched on the main points. And that's, you know, that's the challenge when we talk about these wrestlers is we want to find people obscure enough that people don't know a lot about them, but well-known enough that they know their name. So it's what I call the swamp thing rule. Because Swamp Thing was a movie in the 80s that everybody heard of, but nobody ever actually saw. <laughs> so the idea is is to come up with names that uh, everyone's familiar with, but might not know some details. For example, one of the wrestlers we talked about was Dennis Stamp. Um, of course, everyone knows some, you know, his Beyond the Mad appearances, but they might not know more about his backstory and how he was actually a policeman for LaBelle at one point. Um, and at one point when he worked in... Uh, Las Vegas as an exterminator, he said he would often be working in people's homes and be able to see himself on TV if they were watching wrestling at the time. You know, Al, I want to thank you because uh, I was listening to the show the other day and having seen Dennis Stamp out here in like 74, 75, uh, I always felt that that everybody, he's just become a joke. He becomes a, a you know, a punchline uh, because of, of the, 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 the movie, but he really was a, a really kind of a decent worker. He was, he never was much more than mid card here. He will, he held the TV championship. He did do uh, some, uh, some main events. I held the tag titles with a bunch of guys, but he worked on a regular basis. Uh, he, he was interesting to watch. Um, I saw him work main events with John Tolis. I saw him with, against Bobby Shane. Uh, I saw him against a bunch of mighty Zulu. He got a, he got a match out of that stiff, and that's not the easiest thing in the world to do. Um, and he was always really good. And I always felt that what we saw in the documentary was the same thing that a thousand guys have done from time to time about complaining, especially the old school guys about not being on the card or wanting to be on the card or trying to get onto the card. And, uh, I, have always hated whenever somebody brings up Dennis Stamp's name, they, they just make fun of him. And, and he really was, was a decent, uh, worker. Yeah. So many of them are, and so many of them have stories other than the one or two things they might be best known for. And that's what, one of the reasons why I like the podcast, because my blog is a lot more stat based. It's a lot more about the numbers and, and the podcast, especially with John Boucher, um, who just knows so much. uh, It allows us to go almost like a VH1 behind the music on some of these guys. Although we try, we try and highlight, uh, people that actually did some positive things. Um, talking about how, uh, Len Rossi had a positive, uh, post wrestling career. Same thing with Bugsy McGraw actually went into the nursing field, um, after retiring from wrestling and had a long and productive career in the, in, in nursing, uh, after his wrestling days were over. And there's so many stories like that. And so many guys, like you said, Dennis Stamp, that, this was their career and and they deserve to have, as I call it, uh, some sort of back of the baseball card stats, some sort of stat line to 
quantify yeah. their achievements aside from he was in that movie on a trampoline and he was a big joke. No, he was a lot right. more than that. He had runs in Amarillo. He had runs for McGurk. He had the run for LaBelle. And, and, you know, these are the types of things that need to be, for lack of a better term, charted. And I believe that scene in, in the movie, uh, forgive me, Dan, but I believe in Beyond the Mat, that was all set up for the movie. Like it, it was kind of like a reality show. There was not this whole thing in real life where he wasn't booked. He wasn't going to be there. That was, I believe, a plot kind of set up for the movie. Yeah, I know Roland Alexander's role was was pretty much scripted because uh, I actually worked for Roland uh, not uh, not long after I think they filmed his stuff. Yeah, but I, I, I'm wondering how Dennis Stamp, did he get talked into jumping on a trampoline with holding a couple of <laughs> barbells, dumbbells? Or was Guys it really have done a lot less publicity. Yeah, I have uh, done a lot uh, less true enough. It worked okay. for Matt and Jeff Hardy. They started out with the Trampoline Wrestling Federation in their backyard. So, you know, maybe this is a thing. But not with their mom's weights on the <laughs> trampoline. <laughs> 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 Having seen pictures of Matt so and Jeff when they were teenagers, the, those dumbbells probably weighed more than they did when they were teens. <laughs> what were you going to say, Dan? Oh, I started to say that also uh, Dennis Stamp was in the bloodiest live match that I've ever seen. Uh, it was in San Bernardino. He was wrestling John Tolis in a lumberjack match in the main event, and Baron Michelle Leone was the referee. And I couldn't figure out why the Baron was refereeing in a, a white turtleneck uh, light blue pants and a, a pair of white shoes. I mean, it kind of seemed like a strange referee's outfit or whatever. And then at the end of the match, which Stamp won, Greg Valentine jumped in, and he and Tolis just made him, it made Stamp into a bloody mess from head to toe. And the reason that he was wearing those clothes was so that he could grab and cradle uh, Dennis Stamp and have blood all over him from head to toe. Uh, on Leone, so that way it looked like it was real. It was one of those things they do from time to time to to make sure they get the the most out of their uh, their buck that way. But yeah, that was the probably the bloodiest match I have ever seen. Wow. Well, you killed the room. Congratulations. <laughs> well, I'm sorry. About no, 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 no. That's all right. Yeah, whenever you see bloodiest... someone wearing white, you figure they're going to bleed. Yeah, I'm trying to think of the I'll... bloodiest match I ever days, saw. Yeah. Bloodiest match I ever saw live is probably. Heavenly Bodies versus Thrill Seekers when Jericho hit his gusher in 94. Uh, That's probably the bloodiest one I ever saw live. I, m mine might have been the uh, Taipei Deathmatch oh, uh, in ECW. In 95? Yeah. You know, I actually don't know if I ever watched that match because it didn't air on TV. It was only on the home video. And I remember just for whatever reason, not really wanting to see the match. I was curious that they were doing it, but I, I don't think I ever watched that match. I, so I remember, uh, after the match, the, the bloody, uh, tape, uh, which had shards of broken glass or whatever on it. Um, one of the rottens gave it to one of the guys I knew who was up there for the fan convention, which was also why I was up there. And this guy left it in the hotel room. Can you Im Ooh. imagine the housekeeper, cleaning the room, finding <laughs> you know, a bunch of white athletic tape with perhaps shards of broken glass on it covered <laughs> in blood. <laughs> and what her reaction or his reaction must have been. You know what? If it was the travel lodge, I'm sure they were used to it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they were very used to it. Good point. What a dirty I worked slum on a show. it was. I worked, 
Oh, well, I worked on a show one time uh, where uh, the veteran um, uh, cut the younger guy and uh, went a little too deep, and it just became a gusher. And the people that were running the uh, the facility we were in uh, freaked out, and they said, "Call nine one one." So I I grabbed the phone, and I called nine one one, and I said, uh, "My name is Dan Farron. I'm at a wrestling match, and uh, someone has been has been uh, busted open, and they're and they're bleeding all over the place." And the operator said to me, "Did they cut themselves?" And I thought, <laughs> of all the operators I had to get, I, I got a smart operator. <laughs> uh, and I and I said, I have no idea. I don't know. You better get here soon. That's all. And hung up the phone at that point. But it's so funny. Yeah, did did he cut himself? Uh, I didn't know what to say at that point. Yeah. yeah. I thought the story was going in another direction. I thought they were going to ask you to call nine one one, and next thing you know, Big Al comes running out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Well, I'll give you credit. You protected the business on nine one one, and that's very important. That think. is, it definitely is. <laughs> what's uh, what's going on in Southern California with the indie scene, Dan? Uh, not a whole heck of a lot right now. I mean, uh, let's see. Everybody here, they're opening up the state for sixteen and over for vaccinations come May first. Uh, I'm sure that some of the the, the more sleazy local promoters are going to probably try to figure out a way to, to start running shows soon. I mean, they're opening up comedy clubs in some places and things like that for inside stuff in, in a few weeks, it looks like. So I, I imagine that the guys will be jumping on on it right away with things like COVID death matches and, and you know, a loser gets injected or something like that, you know, before it's over <laughs> with. Uh, the only shows that, that I've seen uh, around in the area, they are still doing some of those drive-in uh, shows. There, there's a group called uh, Mexican Extreme Wrestling that is doing a show up in Ventura next week uh, in a drive-in. Um, where you where you pull your cars in, which I still think is the funniest thing. I was watching those ones from Mexico. They where you, you can't really applaud, so everybody just starts blowing their horns and flicking their lights. Uh, but I haven't I haven't heard anything uh, from any of the local guys about uh, starting shows up soon. But I'm sure there'll be some of these kind of quiet, uh, especially with, with the lucha scene, because those are mostly neighborhood based. Uh, you know, so I, I'm sure that that I'm sure the stuff will be getting going. We'll be going really, really soon, and we'll be back to all the, the excitement that is indie wrestling in Southern California. All right, and how many games do you think the Orioles are going to lose this year? Uh, let's see. Um, how many games they're playing about? What, 100 and, <laughs> 162. What, 25, <laughs> I predict. 237. They'll find ways to drop <laughs> 75 more games uh, somewhere. As I always say, every as I say every year, the Orioles are, are the only team that are eliminated uh, from playoff contention during spring break. That's that's how it works. I, someday, someday I will I will be rewarded for all my my youthful days in the 1960s of watching Brooks Robinson and Boog Pal and Frank Robinson and all those different years and, and being at the world series when uh, they beat the reds. Uh, but it's, 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 a, it's another rebuilding decade or two or four or five. When you get, when you get a new yeah, owner, it'll change. Yeah, it probably will. Oh. Is Peter Angelo still the owner? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's the problem. Yeah. <laughs> Al, uh, it came up earlier. I think Lou was the one who brought it up. Actually, your plan to be in every stadium that's active before anyone else, right? Talk about so that. obviously, 
Yeah. Uh, so last year uh, during the Star Wars, we mentioned that I had been planning to go to the new uh, stadium for the Rangers on opening day on their home opener. And in in theory, be the first fan to set foot in that stadium on a game day that had been to every other active NLB stadium. Of course, COVID wiped that out, and they ended up, uh, because they had the playoffs there, I think they had the last two rounds, they let some fans in. So there almost certainly has been someone in there that's been to every other stadium. So that dream is gone. I would still love to go to see a game there this season, just to say I've been to all the active ones, but I'm honestly in no hurry to do it right now. Even, even when I get vaccinated and all this and that, yeah, it'd be cool to do, but I don't have to do it as soon as possible. Do you think the next time a new stadium opens up for a team, you're going to feel the drive, the urge to once again go for this goal because you will have a second chance at that point to yeah. be I, the I, first person in every stadium? I, I, on I a could game day. very well see myself. Yeah, I could very well see myself wanting to do it the next new one. Um, but this one, since... Um, and, and granted, I guess I could technically still be the one, you know, be the first one to be there for a regular season game that's been all the years. But again, you know, there are far more important things in the world going on that I, you know, don't need this. But yeah, in a few years when they open up a new one, yeah, I will probably get the bug again uh, and, and do it. And, and really, the idea is to see if I can get free shit from the, you know, from the team for doing it. <laughs> I don't think I'm going to go to I, any games this season. I don't think I'm going to risk it. I'm I'm so close to uh, the Brave Stadium that it would be you know foolish to not think about it. Um, they do have right outside the stadium. They do have a very large monitor where even on even on home game days they show the game, uh, and they have like a little uh, astroturf field in front of it, uh, and people go out there and picnic or kids you know play and things like that. Mm -hmm. I for sure will go there as far as going in for a game. I'm sure I will at some point during the season, but I don't I don't feel the compelling urge to have to do it. So well, here's just to just to, just to let you know, Al. Oh yeah. sorry. Uh okay, the Globe Life Field, their home opener is April 5th, Rangers against the Blue Jays. And uh, let's see, Wednesday the 7th, it's Nolan Ryan Beef Dollar Hot Dog Day. <laughs> so so mark your calendars. I mean, I, I, I was at plenty of Burt Prentice hot dog nights when I worked for Burt in Nashville, so this is nothing new. Uh, no, I was, okay. I was starting to okay. say, guys, I was wondering. When will, when when will you guys among you guys here? When will you feel safe enough to go to the movies, to a baseball game, to a wrestling show, uh, theater, anything like that, a concert? I uh, I haven't felt safe enough to go to a wrestling show in many years. <laughs> I was afraid I would hate myself in the car on the way home. In terms of a concert, I'm not even considering a concert for the foreseeable future. The movie theater, I'd prefer I prefer to avoid the movie theater when there's no pandemic. I just don't find it to be a pleasurable experience. Um, we were recently looking at houses, and a lot of the houses you see, they have a screening room. One person got it right. One person had a screening room where there wasn't movie theater seating, 
There were couches yeah. and really comfortable chairs and different angles because these people get these screening rooms and they think, oh, let's make it like a movie theater because their movie theaters are so comfortable. We need to copy that <laughs> in our fucking house. But uh, I'm not a big movie theater fan, if you can't tell. Uh, maybe if it was a grand theater instead of a generic AMC, I'd feel differently. Right. But with the Mets, I don't intend to go this season. Things could change if all of a sudden everyone's vaccinated and all of a sudden they announce that everything's safe, which isn't going to happen. But, you know, they're not letting people in there unless they're vaccinated and then they're tested. And I think you need two different tests. Mm -hmm. But the thing that makes me consider the Mets before other things is it's an open air stadium and the Mets stadium was built so you could walk around. So you don't have to mm -hmm. be stuck in a seat. You can go hang out in the outfield. And for that reason, I would consider the Mets a concert will scare me. I've been to way too many concerts. It's loud. Someone wants to say something to you. They're yelling in your ear. You're very close to everyone. I don't know if I could deal with that until I felt like things were a lot better. Maybe once the dispensaries open up in New Jersey, I will feel more comfortable <laughs> about a lot of these things. But right now we have legal weed and nowhere to get it. Yeah, to answer that question, I actually went to the movies in October. Um, the AMC Theater by me, they actually renovated it. They redid it a couple of years ago and they installed uh, much nicer seating, but also much less seats per theater. Um, in in every auditorium, it's got it's like a, a it has twelve different screens. Every one of them has a, a much broader you know seating area and has less people in. Plus, they were letting far less people in, and no one was going to the movies. So I decided just for the heck of it to go see a movie on a Thursday at eleven a.m. I think mm. there were two other people in the theater. I felt fine. I'm in no rush to do it. And now that the studios are doing uh, you know dual releases on uh on a streaming service as well as the theaters i don't have a need to go to the theater i'm going yeah. to a concert uh at the end of april um they are it's not it's normally it's a standing room only venue but they are actually putting in tables mm -hmm. and you're going to be in tables of four and at your table will only be your group so mm -hmm. you either you either bought you bought a table and you can bring up to three other people with you. But if you're by yourself, they're not going to stick three other strangers with you. Um, and they are distance at such a you know, they are set at such a distance apart. And then you're supposed to be wearing masks unless while actively eating or drinking. I have a feeling at a concert, no one's going to follow that. But if things are spaced out enough. Um, and at this point, I will have had at least one of the two vaccine shots, and I'll be wearing a mask the whole damn time. I'm okay with it. Hmm. Yeah, I could tell you I have tickets to uh, Gabriel Iglesias, which was supposed to happen before the pandemic at the Chase Center here where the Warriors play. That's uh, been put off and put off again. I'm not sure what the rescheduled date is nowadays. I'm, I'm a little iffy on it. And then also the other, the, uh, the other event that I do have uh, tickets for is 
I know you'll like this, Brian, the Cauliflower Alley Club oh, reunion. Oh, get the fuck out of here. Which is, uh, has been rescheduled again to the end of September. I have yeah. the feeling, I'm, I think, I'm hoping that there will be enough of the, uh, you know, our treasured uh, legendary workers who are, you know, get vaccinated and, uh, you know, duly protected by that time. It would be my first CAC, so yeah, and maybe your last. As, well, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> go out in a blaze of glory at the Gold Coast, yeah, um, yeah. and then yeah, baseball Giants. Mm, I don't know. Might go to the Coliseum because hardly anybody goes to the A's games anyway. I know I'll have a, a great. Uh, you know, cushion of space around me, you know, <laughs> even in the before times, I knew I could have a <laughs> whole section <laughs> to myself. Yeah. So it's a baseball team that was built to be pandemic safe. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, in San Fran, there's going to be enough of a, a breeze blowing in from the water that as long as you're sitting, you know, on the right side of it, people, uh, you know, whatever germs are, you know, are being out there are going to be blown away from you. I, you know, I hadn't thought of that, Al. I, 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 that's you know, that's Al comes with the with the science and, and the facts. Just, so. just just sit all the way at the upper row with your back to uh, to the water, and that way the wind is is blowing you know uh, away from you, in front yeah. of you. It'll yeah, it'll be me, the hot dog wrappers, and the seagulls. Yeah. So. <laughs> Well, guys, we are going to start wrapping up soon, but let me open the floor. Does anyone have any other wrestling topics they want to discuss tonight? Oh, re- why would we talk about wrestling? Wrestling's the dumbest shit ever. <laughs> <laughs> God. <laughs> All right, I'll take that as a no. <laughs> From these three no, fine no, wrestling podcast guests. Why ruin a perfectly good conversation? That's what I say. Why ruin a perfectly good conversation without bringing some of that oh. stuff up? Oh, come on. Oh, my butt, my hole does not merit a discussion. That's amazing. Oh, the WWE. Listen, I have been a wrestling fan 50 years. This year is my 50th year. I started watching the 55, you know, whatever it was back in 1971. And I can't ever remember, and I, I grew up on the WWWF at the beginning. I lived in Maryland, and for the first couple of years, so I was living there. And then uh, I used to, you know, to check in. I mean, obviously, with the, with the, uh, the expansion in the 80s, um, then I, I, I've seen a lot of WWF over the years. I can't ever think of a worse period in the, in the WWF, uh, or the WWE, excuse me, uh, than right now. And then to take the only joy that I have about them, uh, the, the network with all the old stuff on there and yank it from my hands. And, uh, and I, and I doubt very much that it will, it will even ever make the, the transition to Peacock. Um, it's, it's, it's very, very sad. Again, I'm, I'm not one to complain about it because I don't watch that much of it. So I, I, I don't hate watch, but uh, boy, I find myself, I, I've been buying more wrestling books uh, and, and, and DVDs and, and hunting things down. And if, you know, the books, if I, the most obscure books, if I could find a book 
about the 1950s in, in, in Bunghole, Alabama uh, wrestling. I'll buy that and I'll read that with great excitement. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I just, uh, I can't, I can't, I just can't really get excited about a lot of stuff, but at least there's a lot of great research material and stuff that you can read these days and, and, and things like that. I mean, that's, that's the best part about it. Because um, the business, as I said to, to, to Kurt recently, uh, the thing is that wrestling is not being made for me anymore. Uh, the, the wrestling that was made for me was a long time ago. I, I'm sure there's some silly, really good stuff here and there, uh, but in general, um, you know, I, I just I, I have a hard time watching it. But I don't want to complain about it any more than than most people do already. So, did you get the Lance von Eric mm-hmm. book? No, I want to get that. It's actually tempting me. Uh, It very much tempted me. I I started reading John's book actually this weekend. I'm enjoying that very much. Um, And, um, you know, I I want to get the Lance book. It sounds fascinating. I just got the Lance Von Erich book, the Mad Maxine book, which is a Mm. novelized version or a fictionalized version of uh, her reality. And then I also got, let me get this one here. I saw someone post this online, and I had no idea about it, and I said, I need this. It's a kid's book entitled The Great Antonio, (laughs) and I thought, this I need for my collection, and then I can actually read this to my kids. The story, there's no Inoki uh, (laughs) chapter in here. I mean, it's all drawings and, you know, Watch Inoki stomp. Antonio, stomp, Anoki, stomp. But it's all about the uh, the great strongman. Here's the back cover. What made the great Antonio so great? He weighed as much as a horse. He once wrestled a bear. He could devour 25 roast chickens in one sitting. In this whimsical book, beloved author and illustrator Elise Gravel tells the story of Antonio Barachevich the larger-than-life strong man who had muscles as big as his heart. So how about that? A great Antonio kids book. I got this now. Man. <laughs> oh. I'm, waiting, I'm waiting for the new Jack kids book. <laughs> I can see you open it up and the Natural Born Killers just plays through the whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> it's a coloring book and the only crayon they give you is red. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, oh man. And Just I have blood on everything. And I'm going to read this on the next 605, or at least parts of it. I have right here my classic <laughs> copy of How to Defend Yourself in a Cowardly Manner, written and illustrated by Leaping Lanny Poffa. <laughs> Lanny Poffa. Yes. <laughs> and boy, these illustrations. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> now wait is there an illustration of the the thing he's no allegedly no okay. no thank god <laughs> wow. yeah is it better or worse than the illustration of the uh jim londo's tijuana bible <laughs> well i could read some of it hold on <laughs> let me read a little bit here uh this is from chapter three exploring some myths i'll read it in the lanny voice to the best of my ability <laughs> A, a black man <laughs> I just held on which again. <laughs> a black man does not have a harder head than a white man, and that kick him in the shins bit hurts for everyone. A man walked into a bar room and said, I could beat anybody in the world. A big guy gets up and says, You can't beat me, and with that he exclaimed, Besides you. 
Do you think you can win a fight if you kick in the genitals? Be careful not to pick on Ken and Barbie dolls because they have no genital. <laughs> what is this? <laughs> I once knew a girl who wow. played wow. with dolls, and when she got older, she was shocked. All right. Well, this. Oh, boy. Wow. The, the unrhyming wit and wisdom no. of Lanny Poffo. 60 pages of this here. Let me see. Oh, this is a breakdown of the chapter titles. How to defend yourself. Uh, this book is dedicated to the coward and the closet coward in each of us. <laughs> it begins with, hello, coward. <laughs> uh, there's no chapter list. It's just uh, the chapters just start. And uh, chapter four, scientific unarmed combat maneuvers and other dirty tricks. All mm. right. Well, next 605, ladies and gentlemen, here's a preview of one of the things you can look forward to. How to defend yourself in a cowardly <laughs> manner. Scott Cornish does a better Lanny than me. I may have to have him read some of this. Maybe uh, maybe uh, Rock will uh, buy that uh, book and turn it into a, a companion series for his series. <laughs> Young Lanny. Young Lanny. Ugh. There was a video on Mid-South Wrestling when he debuted. They played like the week before he debuted. I don't know who this was supposed to appeal to. At one point, it's just a kid standing on his shoulders. And then, like, they would go to him in between these clips, and his quotes would be like, I fight for what's right. I fight for truth. I fight for good. Like, it's just, what is this? Who does this appeal to? And the answer was uh, nobody. Nobody. <laughs> the answer was uh, Mid-South fans that like Paul Ellering, uh, you know, uh, climbing on kids and, and doing pull-ups on yeah. pipes. Oh, that's uh, imagine if he had actually been healthy enough to make a comeback com coming off all those bizarro videos they had with Paul Ellering for months at one point. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, guys, we're going to start wrapping up this segment of Star Wars. Has everyone predicted who they think will win the World Series? Dan, you haven't. No, I have not. Uh, I predict the Yankees. Of course you do. Al, who do you think will win the World Series? Why, why, <laughs> um, what do you mean, of course they do? I, I predict them to beat the Dodgers, actually. Yeah, I, I, I think that when I first came on, before before fire broke out in the Atlanta <laughs> suburbs, <laughs> yes. before Gone with the Wind Part 2 started filming, right? Um, I predicted the Dodgers are going to uh, do it again. And Lou? Uh, just for the hell of it, the Tampa Bay Rays. All right. Well, of course, the correct answer, the New York Mets. But with that, we wrap up this section of Star Wars. I don't know how much longer the other segments will go. So either. So this will either be let me rephrase that. So this will either be the middle section of the show or the end of part one. We really don't know yet. And either do you. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. But until next time, I want to thank Mike Sempervivi. John McAdam, Lou Kippelman, Dan Farron, and of course, the fire starter himself, Al Getz, who knows how to make an entrance here on this show. We'll be back with more Star Wars, but until then, let's go Mets! <laughs>